Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, September 29, 843-661-0937. Good morning, No Shot, No Home, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. <laughs> I've got a bone to pick. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It, and and I, I, don't, I don't think I'm high maintenance. I mean, I really and truly don't think I'm high maintenance at all. Get ready, uh, Josh. Well, I mean, I Most show up high and do maintenance my job. people don't. No, you guys have these conversations. <laughs> you guys have these conversations. Um, as if I'm not here, and then ten seconds later we got to go on the air and do a radio show. But th- these are complicated matters we're discussing off the air, and they deserve serious consideration. In other words, we need to say, "Hey, can we get together after the show today?" But no, you guys want to just throw these things around, like for- formatics and things. Yeah, I mean, like like one of these. Well, you remember the old day? Well, I mean, you. Yeah, I mean, Josh may not. You and I would remember the old day. You put a a, a dime in a machine. And turned the handle, didn't give you gum, didn't give you candy, but rather a bouncing ball. Yeah, sure. And it would bounce like from here to the moon. Yep. You know, you could throw it in a corner and it would bounce like for 30 minutes. Oh, that was fun. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy fun. Um, that's kind of the way we, we, we've got <laughs> issues bouncing around in this room, kind of like that crazy ball we used to pay a dime for in the machine. And then all of a sudden, uh, five, four, three. And I'm like, dude, really? I mean, I, I understand that I have convinced some of you I'm superhuman. But I'm not. I mean, as much as I disguise myself as something else, I am a mere mortal doing the best I can, <laughs> as everybody else is, and, trying and to get from one minute to the next. So are you saying it's difficult to shift gears from those quick conversations well, I mean, into getting your head right for the content of the yeah, show? Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting here getting ready to do a show. I've, I've, got, I've got kind of notes put together. I've got uh, a, a systematic way of which I think we're going to go, go about this job. And you guys walk in and say, hey, did you hear such and such is dying of cancer? And I'm like, no, I didn't hear that. And I'd rather not five, can, can, four. You ready? Right. Kind of yeah. derails your yeah. train well, of thought. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It's Friday morning. Uh, <laughs> forget the fact that I was told 10 seconds ago someone I know is dying of cancer. Um, I'm, I'm using that as, as an, an extreme example. example yeah, that's but that's kind of the um, Didn't happen. That's just, just unbelievably disrespectful <laughs> to, to the host. Josh, so noted. <laughs> Ken is not high well, maintenance. Write that you're down. Just, you're just as guilty as Josh. I know. You're just that's as guilty I'm tell, as Josh. That's why I talked to him. Okay. Said, you know, okay. We we need to note this, Josh. Some of these, um, some of the and, okay, and, and and some of the conversation this morning. You guys don't think I'm listening? Some of the conversation this morning included the way I do my job. <laughs> mm, mm. Did it not? It did. Okay. Yeah, it had to do with the the Was formatics of the to show. Hear that? No, you. I mean, you'd figure out eventually. Do I eventually get? Of course, I would have figured it out eventually. Eight four three six six one zero nine. Um, three, seven is our number. Um, Josh, you got us in queue. I'm good. Josh, you got us in queue. Uh, I I, can get us in queue. Yeah. Do that. If you don't mind. Uh, I want to, I want to go to six hours of testimony yesterday, six hours of questioning, um, three hours of aggressively pursuing the truth, three hours of Trump derangement syndrome. Um, one team gets their shot. Another team gets, um, their shot. I will say this. And, and, I, and I guess this is the moment. I mean, yesterday proved to me that this nation has irreconcilable differences. I mean, we're not going to get together. There's just no way. I mean, it's not, I don't know what, what was Trump, the, the rocket fuel on the fire of dissent and disagreement? Probably. Uh, you know, Obama may have been the first dose of rocket fuel or Trump was kind of the, um, has it completely burned? No, we'll put some more on it. Let's burn it to the ground. There is no way. These two teams agree to disagree civilly. I mean, the, the, the American government is broken. 
Uh, the system is not, but the the brands. I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday. When this person, as, as a Democrat, they've got a brand, and then this other Republican is a brand. I'm Nancy Mace. You knew she had to say something profane, right? But I mean, that's expected of her brand. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Jordan has a brand. Um, James Raskin has a brand. I mean, every, everybody on either side, AOC, has a brand. And it's not about governing the country. It's not about serving the people. It's about advancing my brand. And, and, and when that becomes the case and it's all about you or her or him or she or it, it's not about America any longer. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I can be fair-minded. I mean, I, I can be a hack. I can be a, you know, a, 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 a partisan, and I can be unrealistic if I choose to be. But, but I think the impeachment inquiry, from what I understand and what I've read, it's not a, a – you're not issuing articles of impeachment. We're basically inquiring. I mean, there, there are some questions that a lot of Americans have. This is an inquiry. Um, three attorneys yesterday on Neil Cavuto, Cavuto's show, and Cavuto was unimpressed. But Cavuto's kind of, I mean, Fox News, something's happening there. Uh, I can assure you, the longer Roger Ailes is dead, the more Fox News is becoming typical traditional mainstream media slash entertainment. I mean, it's not MSNBC. It's not a cheering section for the uh, for the American political left. It's not the network news, but it's not forcefully advancing a conservative agenda or supporting. I mean, they would have never had the lady from Univision hosting the debate I mean, I understand inclusiveness, but I mean, the lady asked about DACA and abortion laws. I mean, it was it was a it was a question you would imagine a CNN anchor of asking of you know in a in a presidential debate. And Fox is just anyway. Um, the, the, yesterday was the day that I've decided we're not putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. I mean, we're just not. Uh, what, what, what are we? Uh, Thomas Jefferson ain't walking through that door. You know, uh, Alexander Hamilton ain't walking through that door. The day of civil, intense, respectful, intellectual discourse is over. I mean, you can disagree with Jefferson's philosophy on government. Nobody could call him dumb. You could disagree with Hamilton's philosophy on government. Nobody could call him dumb. You could agree. You could disagree with both of their philosophies. Nobody could call him unserious. Nobody could call him hackish. And that's what we've got today in our government. It's a bunch of brands trying to advance their notoriety, their fame, their worth instead of doing a job required and and Congress is there to make laws and pass laws, investigate. I mean, the oversight committee, what does the word oversight mean? I mean, it, you know, and, and and it's in conjunction with, and the reason we're having to do an inquiry, guys, is the DOJ didn't do their job. I mean, all the findings, all the bank records, all the nuggets of information we have should have come from DOJ and the FBI, the RS, but they didn't. The RS chose to not investigate. There's an email now that says, but they basically said individual number one is not to be messed with. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's a that's an email they found in some of their subpoenas. Uh, I think the first subpoena that the the over the excuse me the impeachment inquiry committee uh, asked for, they found a a document that shows a two hundred fifty thousand dollar wire transfer going to the resident. Now the money's not in a box, but it's a wire transfer. You got to provide a a residence. Um, Hunter Biden provided Joe residents, permanent residents. Um, and and in the others, there was a an email and some of the other findings. There was an email that basically it's an internal email at DOJ saying, hey, he's off limits. Um, this investigation doesn't include him. I mean, we can do this and that and the other, but but individual number one is not to be 
uh, messed around with. So, so Jonathan Turley admitted that as we sit, we don't have enough um, criminality to charge anybody with, and it's not a criminal investigation, but it's a political matter. And Turley said yesterday, and I agree with Turley, the, we have absolutely enough evidence to launch an inquiry. We don't have evidence yet to impeach Joe Biden. We may never have the evidence to impeach Joe Biden in the weirdest way imaginable. I hope we don't have the evidence to impeach Joe Biden. I hope a president isn't that stupid. I got a feeling he is, but I'm hopeful <laughs> he's not. But that's kind of sort of where we find ourselves. And, um, and the Democrats kept saying there is no evidence here. Well, well, there's not evidence enough to impeach, but there's plenty of evidence to, to launch an inquiry. But it's an investigation. We're trying to find out what the truth is, and we can't trust these government agencies run by liberal Democrats. And it's hard to say they're not run by Democrats when Trump loses some of the collar counties 80 to 20%. I mean, all of these counties, the outlying areas of Washington, D.C., uh, remember in the 2020 presidential election when Trump's up seven points in Virginia, and the novice says, wow, I mean, this is going to be a big night for Trump. You know, there's 65% reporting, and he's up 7% in Virginia. But we all knew that the, the D.C. elites hadn't voted yet. The bureaucrats who inhabit the federal government haven't voted yet. And when they started turning their ballots in, I mean, Trump lost 80-20, 85-15 in, in some areas. So, you know, when you can't trust the bureaucrats, you can't trust the government agencies, the duly elected representatives of the, you know, 435 districts in America have to do the job. And here we are. And I think there is ample reason to launch an inquiry and follow the money. I mean, I thought about this show yesterday. Uh, more than one time I heard someone say, we're following the money. I mean, forget what the Democrats' um, narrative is. Forget what the Republicans' narrative is. Somebody, The forensic accountant said the most trustworthy information in any investigation that includes money is follow the money. And that's what we're talking about. And, and Jim Jordan did a pretty good job. Um, I don't want, are we going to honor the request? Are we going to get more timely today of the private conversation you guys had behind my back about me talking for too, too long in one segment? <laughs> Just trying to adjust the formatics of the hour. Yeah, we need to stay on time. Okay. So we're going to do really, really rule. short segments now, same and on, have same commercial breaks about as long as the segments of the radio show. And then we'll be back with another short segment and another um, break about as long as the radio show. Uh, I mean, that's a good problem. We got a lot of advertisers. Yeah. I'm glad of that. Times remains the same. Yeah. Okay. It's just broken up a little okay. differently. Well, let's, um, I mean, I've been six minutes of speaking, so let's, um, <laughs> let's take our first break of the morning. Correct. Too now it's too early. Is it too early? Yeah. Okay. No, I don't think it is too early. It is. <laughs> I think it's pretty close <laughs> to the right time. You take to, a break whenever you want to take, take a break. break. Okay. Let's do this. You got us in queue, Josh. How long is your sound bite? Uh, I it's, do. It's, can I play it? It's a minute 23. Oh, Josh and Rev, yeah, can I good. play the minute per 23 perfect. sound bite? Perfect. You Thanks. have our permission. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate you letting me host see, this show. See what happens, Josh? See, <laughs> see the way this works? Uh, uh, let, let's listen to Jim Jordan, and then we'll take a timely break, yep. and we'll be back on the other side. You ready, Josh? <laughs> ready. Thank you, Professor Gerhardt, it wasn't just a speech. He leveraged $1 billion of American tax money, and he did so at a time when our government was supportive of the prosecutor. Here's what our government said. The Assistant Secretary of State 
We have been impressed with the ambitious reform and anti-corruption agenda of your government written to the Prosecutor General, who Joe Biden leverages our money to get fired. The United States fully supports your efforts to fight corruption, she further wrote. The Interagency Policy Committee said this on October 1, 2015. The IPC recommends moving forward with a third loan guarantee to uh, Ukraine in the near term. And even after Joe Biden gives the speech on December 9th, the European Commission said, their report said the anti-corruption benchmark is deemed to have been achieved for Ukraine. But the most telling evidence is what his business partner said. Devin Archer, when we deposed him under oath just two months ago, said this. Here's the question. The request was help from the United States government to deal with the pressure they were under from their prosecutor. You know what Mr. Archer's response was? That's correct. Next question. What did Hunter Biden do after he was given that request? He called his dad. That's what we're investigating. That's one of the three things Professor Turley talked about, the influence peddling scheme. Ooh. Let's, um, let's take a break. I want to come back and, and chew on that for a minute. There was actually a, a Washington Post article that, that said Biden called an audible. In other words, they, they had a plan. I mean, you just heard Jordan lay it out. Everybody was supportive of giving the money, give the money, give the money. On the way to Ukraine, Biden called an audible. And someone in the administration leaked that to the Washington Post. And then, I mean, that, remember, and the... The SOB got fired. That's the crux of the matter. Um, let, let's, let's stay here for a second. Let, let's let's take the break, come back and stay focused on this um, imp- impeachment inquiry and uh, report the best we can. Back in a few. The majority debate yesterday was, once again, I mean, t- to me, it's one side, and, and I know I'm a Republican, and I'm going to naturally be favorable toward the Republican point of view, but it seemed to me yesterday that one side is honestly trying. I mean, there's no question they'd love to bring Biden down. I mean, there's no question they want to ding the um, the incumbent president. There, there's probably some payback or, or resentment here about the way Trump got treated, impeached twice. So, of course, I mean, there's, you know, a notch in the belt sort of um, syndrome. But, but for, for the most part, and I'm not talking about some of the others. I'm not talking about, um, well, I don't want to call names. I mean, some, some of those who I wish weren't Republicans. Um, they just behave in a very different sort of way than I wish elected officials behave, but it is uh, what it is. They're working on their brand, and their brand has certain um, externals that they have to um, to continue to write, remind uh, people of. But but I go back to, and I watched nearly all of it, and the media is trying to, Andy McCarthy said yesterday that the one faux pas the Republicans may have made is the announcement of an impeachment inquiry because when people hear impeachment, they think you're at the end. I mean, they think, here we go. We've gone from investigating to impeaching, and McCarthy said they would have probably been better off leaving it as is, letting the oversight investigate, um, letting the ways and means investigate some of the financial um, matters, let the um, uh, judiciary uh, investigate other matters, but from what I've understood and from what I've gathered, and I think this to be true, when you have an impeachment inquiry, there's a certain forcefulness now that there's a, uh, in other words, if, 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 if I'm writing a letter on behalf of an impeachment inquiry committee to a bank and I'm subpoenaing bank records, the likelihood of me getting those records is better 
than if I send one from the House Oversight Committee. Now, now there's some questioning. We're getting to the weeds here. McCarthy did what Pelosi did. McCarthy launched an impeachment inquiry without a vote of the full body. That does delegitimize the effort to some degree. The reason McCarthy did that is they don't have a big advantage. And there's about six or seven, from what I read, about six or seven House members that are in districts that Biden won, and they're concerned about being, you know, on the record of voting for uh, the beginning or the launching of an impeachment um, inquiry. But but formality, for formality's sake, I think the Republicans did a good day's work. I mean, I think they laid the case out. Jordan is hung up on this one episode. I mean, Jordan is hung up on the one episode of, you know, did Biden, I mean, was there a pay-for-play? I mean, I think Turley said something yesterday that was interesting. Influence peddling is not uncommon in Washington. I mean, it's not. Guys, there's no telling. He's right. I mean, there's no, I I was in Columbia. There's no telling how many kids of senators and House members in Columbia have pretty decent jobs working with insurance companies and auto dealers. And I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. I'm not, I'm not condemning it, nor am I condoning it, but it's just the way things are. Washington's got to be a hundred, a thousand, a million times uh, worse than than Columbia is. Um, but, be, but, but the impeachment inquiry has begun. There are no articles of impeachment. There may never be articles of impeachment. But the Republicans believe there's enough there there to inquire about what the truth is. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Uh, Ryan, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. The Orioles are division champs for the first time in a very long time, so I'm feeling very happy. There, there you go. There you go. The All Orioles right. and Braves may may see one another in the uh, in the fall classic. We hope we I, hope I, that's the case for your sake that. and mine. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I would love that. Okay. We we had I don't know who was the Braves and who was the Orioles yesterday, but we had a bit of a political brouhaha. <laughs> one side yeah. uh, interpreting facts a certain way, another side imagine that in D.C. But what do you yeah. make of the Biden impeachment hearing held yesterday? Well, you know, after the Orioles won yesterday, there were a lot of fireworks at Camden Yards, and there certainly were plenty of fireworks at the hearing yesterday. Almost immediately, you had uh, Republicans and Democrats really going at it, and it was very contentious in that room. And like you said, you have Jonathan Turley coming out, who was one of the key witnesses, saying that, yes, there is enough evidence here for an impeachment inquiry, but whether or not there's enough article uh, evidence for actual impeachment, that's still not there yet. Now, that's, of course, the purpose of the inquiry is for Republicans to try to be able to get more information to be able to prove that there is a possible impeachment offense here. Uh, and there certainly was evidence that was presented that Republicans think is strong, including a, a massive transaction of hundreds of thousands of dollars from Hunter Biden that, uh, and one of his foreign business partners that was transferred to an account with the home address being the Delaware home of, of uh, President Biden. I believe he was vice president then. But whether or not that ultimately proves anything, that still is a question. Ryan, a lot of people on the right side of the political aisle, now they're, they're partisans. I mean, and I agree with that. They have a certain way of seeing the world and a, and a certain way they wish government to work. But they can, they're convinced that the only way to find out the truth is to have an impeachment inquiry. They can't trust DOJ. They can't trust the IRS. They can't trust the FBI. I'm not saying they can't or can't, but that's what they believe to be true. Yes, and and that's why you hear uh, James Comer, actually. I believe he just officially subpoenaed uh, for certain bank records from President Biden back when he was vice president. It just went down, I believe, a couple minutes ago. So, I mean, the action is being taken by House Republicans. We just don't know where it's going to go.
Does the impeachment inquiry give these House members more authority than a normal oversight investigation? In other words, if there weren't an impeachment inquiry, but it was done in-house with oversight, are there any different, do they have more influence or power? Can they gain more information doing it this way? Yes, and that's why they've been using the impeachment inquiry, because they believe that they're able to get more access to information, uh, stronger subpoena power. Uh, the Department of Justice needs to cooperate with them a lot more than they, they currently do. So there certainly has been the justification that an impeachment inquiry gives them the access to information that they otherwise just wouldn't be able to get. Well explained. Thank you, Ryan. Go Orioles, go Braves. <laughs> exactly. Have a good one, sir. <laughs> do the same. Ryan Schmelz, Fox News Radio, in the uh, nation's capital. And that's, I mean, that's my understanding. But but I want to be careful. That's my understanding. <laughs> I'm not pronouncing that to be 100% the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I'm understanding. I mean, there's no doubt that Oversight didn't trust DOJ, FBI, and RS to shoot them straight. And they've had recent findings in some of these subpoenas, some internal emails between DOJ um, saying, you know, this guy's off limits. You can only investigate here, not there. Um, and, and I don't know what the step from – and I've tried to read a little bit about it, and I can't find anything. I don't know what you gain from going from the Oversight Committee investigating to launching a formal impeachment inquiry. I mean, you throw the name impeachment in, you know, and that makes it, wow, okay. I mean, this is serious now. I mean, the Oversight Committee's always investigating. I mean, they oversight authority. I mean, their, their, their duty and responsibility is to have congressional oversight over the executive branch. But all of a sudden, the word impeachment comes out, and it kind of adds a new level of seriousness and and maybe, but but I, I do believe that it grants them more authority and it disallows someone who doesn't want to play ball from not playing. In other words, let's hypothetically say that Bank of America, I mean, I, I'm not impugning their name. I'm just throwing them out there because they're very noteworthy and, uh, and everybody kind of knows the brand. So let's say Bank of America is asked by the Oversight Committee for banking records and Bank of America says that's private information. That may stand constitutionally until you launch official impeachment. And the inquiry, I think, forces Bank of America to turn over some of the, uh, some of the bank records. And that's what this is going to be all about. I mean, this is going to be a matter of forensic accounting. The, the Republicans have proven there are shell companies. We know there have been wire transfers. Where did the money go? After it comes from, let's use Burisma as an example. After the money comes from Burisma, to Hunter Biden, where does it go then? I mean, that, that's the question we're asking ourselves. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt in five years, the Biden family received about $24, 25000000 million. That's been proven. That's undeniable. That's indisputable. Where did the money go after it made its way into Hunter Biden and some of the LLC's accounts? We don't know that. But bank records should clearly show where that money did or did not go. Take a break. Back in a few. Three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, I would rather have seen them open up with two articles of impeachment on top of what they're doing. I mean, it's going to take forever to prove what they're trying to prove. I mean, what, what would the article of impeachment be right now, Joe? Um, 
he took an oath of office to take care and uphold the laws of the Constitution. And laws of immigration have been passed and signed by the president and, and passed by Congress. He's not enforcing the border law. That's one of them. That's, that's a, a big agree. You're talking about seven, eight million people coming into the country illegally, and he's moving money around from different – hell, he's taking money out of FEMA to, to take care of these illegals. That's one. The other one is the student loan thing. That's money passed by Congress. So you, you would impeach him on something other than the financial crimes or the suspected financial crimes. Well, you can do the financial crimes, but the 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 easy ones are the ones in the Constitution. You got to remember when they came up with impeachment, there was no judicial system as far as you know financial. We've never had a financial crime impeachment before. This is a new phenomenon. When people got crooked as hell, you can go after that, but you've got a better basis in the Constitution that says the president has to uphold the law. Even though he doesn't like the law, he still has to uphold it until it's it's changed by Congress and signed into law. Now, last I checked, the Supreme Court told him, you know, DACA is unconstitutional, but yet they're still doing it. Uh, the, the immigration law is unconstitutional, yet he's still doing it. The student loan debt, that is unconstitutional, but he says, bump you, I'm going to find a way around it, and he's still doing it. So that is direct impeachable offenses there because he is not taking care to uphold the laws. That's twice in his oath of office that he takes to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And I just don't understand why they don't lead with that. And then you can have all this other stuff. You know, with the impeachment inquiry, you're right. It does give them a lot of of leeway to do stuff. But like the Ukrainian guy said, it'll take them 10 years to figure out where all that money came from. And by then, it'll be a moot point. And... You know, in the meantime, he's selling us down to the river to the Chinese and everybody else. So I would rather see him, you know, get people's attention and say, okay, this is an impeachable offense because everybody can see the border is completely out of control. You know, even the mayors in, in New York and everywhere else is raising hell because they can't can't afford it. But he, like I say, he's also moving money around out of different accounts. You know, they say they need more, the more FEMA money, but that's because they're not using it for disasters. They're using a lot of that money and Ukrainian money. They're using to take care of these immigrants. You know, seven million people at about five thousand dollars a day is what they're estimating. That's a lot of money. And we can't afford that. I mean, I, I love helping people, but at, at some point you've got to put your own gas mask or air mask on before you put the child's on and be the adult in the room. But that's that's the easy impeachment in, in my mind as far as the Constitution goes. 
Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll hear him on the Constitution, but you'll never get the votes. I mean, you never get the votes. There's no, they can't get the votes on this. I mean, there's a reason they didn't have a floor vote in the House to, to launch an impeachment inquiry on the apparent, you know, um, bribery scandal. There's no way. There is no way you'd impeach Biden on the border. I mean, 10 Republicans, maybe 20 Republicans would vote for that. I mean, there's just, I understand the constitutionality really? or not, but, but you got to count heads. I mean, you got to vote. And people in Washington are not going to vote to impeach a president because they didn't enforce border policy the way you want it enforced. And you're moving money around. If, if we start impeaching people because of moving money around, every president <laughs> in the history of this country will get uh, impeached. And, and I think you better focus on, I mean, I, I guess Joe and I disagree here. Um, I mean, I, you know, as a former politician, uh, I learned the hard way at the county, five beats four. 46 senators. Guess what? 43 beat 40, or excuse me, 44 beat 42. I, I can't add. 33 beat, uh, 34 beat 32. I, I'll get it right in a minute. You ready? <laughs> 24 beat 22 um, every single time. It's about math when you want to win elections and win, um, you know, win votes. And I mean, I understand. I think, I think Biden's in violation of the constitutional student debt and, and the border. I mean, I don't think there's any question. He's in direct contradiction uh, to the Constitution, but there is no way you would impeach Joe Biden on his lax immigration policy or on his, you know, moving money around to settle some of the student debt scores. You're just not going to get that done. I think you got to put Democrats defending Joe Biden for taking money from his son. But that, to me, that's where this impeachment inquiry needs to focus. That's where the most, I mean, if you want to bring Biden down, I mean, that's kind of the best place. I, there's a little bit of me, guys, and, and I'm being completely and totally political here for a second. There's a little bit of me that says leave him alone and let him be. Because Biden is such a bad president. I think the American people know he's terrible at his job. The, uh, the polls clearly show that. Do you want to run? I mean, if you're, I mean, Robert Cahaley said yesterday, for the first time that I've heard him say it, to believe you can beat Trump in a primary is insanity. I mean, Robert said that yesterday. Robert also said, who knows what these trials hold? Who knows what convictions lie ahead? I don't, you don't, nobody does. But Robert said yesterday, and I've said it a couple of weeks, uh, you know, inevitable, there's nobody going to beat Trump in a primary. I mean, that's over. I mean, Chris Christie can ask you for a dollar. Ron DeSantis can say, we're rebooting the campaign, and I'm going to debate Gavin Newsom. Nikki Haley can say, you know, I'm the adult in the room. Vivek Ramaswamy can say, I'm some AI caricature of a political candidate. Uh, you know, uh, Tim Scott can give you that hallelujah grin to the cows come home. Ain't nobody whipping Trump's ass at a primary, period. So if it's Trump versus a Democrat, right now, Biden's my Democrat of choice. I just think he's proven to the American people he's in just not up for the job. I don't think he's ever been up for the job. There's a reason he's run twice before when he was younger and, and, and probably a little sharper, and, and he didn't gain any traction there. The Democrats, this is the post-Obama Democrat Party, and they locked Biden in the basement and sold him as a Northeast liberal, you know, just kind of a typical Northeast liberal, and the American public bought it. And, you know, that there were a lot of things that we can't explain that happened in Pennsylvania and some of these other states, but it is what it is. But, um, but I mean, I think cutting the legs off Biden is the right thing to do. 
because I think he's a crook. But the politician in me says, I'd love to run against Biden in November of 2024 because I think Trump wins. But but you can't let a guy. I mean, you're going to hear names like Francis Biden and Anna Alana Biden and Missy Owens and Valerie Biden Owens and James Biden and James Biden Jr. and Caroline Biden and Sarah Jones Biden and uh, Haley Biden and uh, Ashley Biden. You're going to Dr. Jill Biden. You'll hear a lot of these names if, if the... If the impeachment inquiry leads where I think it will, there are going to be a lot of bank records on the other side of Hunter Biden and Rosemont Seneca that send money to a multitude of different places, all with one thing in common, or mostly with one thing in common. They share a last name. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number talking about the impeachment inquiry that happened yesterday on Capitol Hill. Um, It's an inquiry. And, you know, I, I guess one of the one of the witnesses said yesterday, one of the forensic accountants said, and it's it's so true. You know, the bank records take conjecture and speculation out of the equation. I mean, I, I'll say over the air today, and I've said it for six months, I believe that Joe Biden got rich peddling influence. Um, I'll accept that Donald Trump is a mixed bag when it comes to business. But there's a business. I mean, when, when, when somebody said, and a lot of the Democrats said yesterday, what about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump? But, I mean, there's a business. It's not a shell company. I mean, they, they, you know, they're in the hotel resort um, gaming business. They're in the, in the hospitality and lodging sector. You can say they suck at it. You can say Marriott and Hilton are a thousand times better than they've ever thought about being. You can say his golf courses are terrible. Give me Augusta National every day. But there's legitimacy to their business enterprise. They may not be good at it. They may be the best there is at it. But you can walk up to a golf course or a hotel, touch it, feel it, smell it, and say, hey, Trump owns this. Or Trump and Deutsche Bank own it together. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but he signed a note. I mean, there, there's legitimacy to that business enterprise. Um, I mean, they brought up yesterday Ivanka and Jared and $2 billion of Saudi money. But, but, I mean, is the, the, the Saudis probably see Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner as legitimate business people. Do you really believe that anybody perceives Hunter Biden to be a legitimate businessman? That's, that's the point I've always tried to make. I would never, ever say that Trump has done everything by the book. I mean, would you, Rev? You're an ardent Trump supporter. Oh, come on. Yeah. I mean, do you believe Trump's colored outside of the lines of time course. or two in his life? Josh, do you think Trump is one of these guys that um, well, we're not going to do that because statute X, Y, or Z says we can't? No, of course not. No, of not. course not. I mean, he's a wild and woolly business guy. He's going to he's going to paint out or color outside the lines every chance he gets. He's going to roll the dice and see if he can get away with certain things. But but once again, there's a golf course. I see it. I touch it. I feel it. There's a hotel. There's a condominium complex. You know that Trump's a scoundrel and a rascal, and the way he ran his his apartment complexes or the way he ran his office buildings. I mean, I would never rent space from that guy in a million years. Okay, fair enough. But who owns that building? Whose building is that? Can he say, hey, Saudi, uh, to the Saudi business guy, can Trump say, meet me on the eighth floor of my building? Yeah. You know, um, Jared's office is on the ninth floor. I mean, you see where I'm, I mean, there, there's, there are real business practical practices, practices and principles in play. And, and if and if Hunter Biden, I mean, he's at, he's at dinner. Well, here's their business. I mean, here's the business that Hunter Biden owns and has collected $24 million. 
Um, we need the government of America to do something or not. And here's what we're willing to do. Can you help us with that? Hold on a second. Let me talk to my dad. Let me get dad on yeah, the phone. Let me get dad on the phone. Yep. I mean, is that legitimate business? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen. Of course it happens. It's happened a uh, hundred times, a thousand times. I mean, people have gotten in big trouble, you know, peddling influence. Um, but, but very seldom the president's had this much of a paper trail leading to, I'm going to be very fair and diplomatic. You ready? Leading to a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, I, but I it think, also demonstrates the links they went to. It appears to try to hide it. I mean, all these, all the people in the Biden family, that these, these money trails lead to, I mean, that's, that's pretty elaborate, but you would expect them to do that. What you wouldn't expect is DOJ, FBI, and RS to be complicit. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that's where the rub that I have is. Wow. They could have just taken the gold bars and put them in their sweater like Menendez yeah, did, I mean, right? Uh, that's, well, I mean, yeah, but they're a little more sophisticated <laughs> than that. But they didn't. I mean, you'll never. I, I believe this, and I thought about it yesterday. Um, you'll never. I mean, the Clintons were sophisticated and smart enough. There's a difference in political prostitute and political thug. Political prostitute has a little higher IQ. They're, they're a little smarter. So so Bill and Hillary got around. I mean, I got to believe this happened one day. Bill and Hillary get together and say, you know, wow, we're, we're pretty smart. Giving her more of the benefit of the doubt than she deserves. But, you know, he he's a really bright man. There's nobody denying that. Very competent, very capable, very bright um, man. So, but they look around one day and everybody in their orbit is filthy rich. Everybody in their world has, you know, just, just a lot of money. And they want some of that. They, they feel they're smart. They're, they're obviously more decorated. I mean, a, a former president, former first lady, um, former senator, former secretary of state. Yeah, but we've only got $2 million in the bank. These people that we hang around with and eat lunch with, they got $50 million, $100 million, a million in the bank. I mean, I want to be like them. Well, we, we can't uh, slow down, Hillary. Slow down a second. Let's start a Clinton Global Initiative, you know, so, some charitable endeavor. We're going to make the world a better place, and, and that, that'll give us a way to park wealthy people's money. I mean, we're not running for office any longer, so we'll ask all these wealthy people to give us a share of their wealth. We'll put it in this Clinton Global Initiative, and then we'll pay ourselves, and we'll jet around the world, and we'll have access. I mean, it's not really our money, but it kind of sort of is. You know, the Clinton Global Initiative raised a billion dollars. I mean, that's not a check written to – Bill and Hillary Clinton, but it's kind of our money. We're in control of it. We got a board, but the board's going to do exactly what we say do. Why? Because it's called the Clinton Global Initiative, and we're the Clintons. I mean, I, but that that's kind of a sophisticated, elaborate way to be influential. And, and by influence, I'm saying wealth. And but but you've got the Bidens and their political thugs. I mean, they they didn't they they, they weren't smart enough to create these these enterprises. Um, and they brought in outsiders that I don't think they vetted well enough. I mean, Vinnie Barbarino has not been as loyal to the Bidens as Stephanopoulos or, or Carville have been to the Clintons. Th there's a game that Carville, I mean, that, that the Clintons play with Carville and Stephanopoulos and a lot of these other, um, you know, uh, I guess the alumni of the, uh, the, the Clinton political family or the Clinton political organization, they would be some of the, um, some of the pristine graduates. They graduated with honors. Carvel and Stephanopoulos kind of cut their teeth in. Rahm Emanuel would be another, you know, I mean, the, the Clintons put them on the map 
and there's a loyalty there. And, and I just think that the Bidens were a bit desperate, and I don't think they're very smart. I think that is the genuine, I mean, when, when I think of the Bidens or the Clintons, I mean, I think they're both in the business of political influence and pedal, uh, influence peddling. But, but I, I believe, once again, the Bidens are not nearly as smart as, as the Clintons are. And here we are with a, a pretty distinct paper trail, I think, of, of where the facts may lead. So you've got, once again, you've got a, uh, an inquiry that is trying to find out what is on the other side of the, of the, the paper trail of the money that goes into Hunter Biden or some of these LLC's accounts. Once again, we've got we've got corroborated, substantiated evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that money was paid by foreign nationals and foreign governments and foreign companies to the Biden family. And by the Biden family, Hunter Biden being the front man. I mean, you got Hunter Biden. He's Mick Jagger. You know, you, you got him standing out front. I mean, he's the face of the stones. He's the face of the Biden enterprise. And and in the you know, on the other side of Hunter Biden is whom? And that's what the inquiry will try to try to establish. And, and, I, and I say this, you know, it's not, it won't be conjecture. It won't be speculative. It won't be, you know, we, we think this may have happened. We wonder what happened there. I mean, if they're able to access the bank records, it will, it will absolutely in great detail show who got what. And I mean, did, did, did somebody here, here would be an interesting point. And I, I wonder how involved the inquiry will be with this. Let's say that um, that Joe Biden is smarter than I gave him credit for. And Joe Biden tells Hunter, Hunter, don't give me that money. Pay the house payment. I mean, the house payment on the beach house is three grand a month. Pay the house payment, pay the insurance, pay the, pay the taxes. I mean, that comes up to 50 grand, 60 grand a year. Um, you know, pay this, pay that. Give the... Um, Give the grandkid money. Give the you see where I'm headed. I mean, is there did they get elaborate and a bit sophisticated in making sure they didn't direct deposit money into Joe Biden's uh, bank account? Now there's some discrepancy, and the Washington Post is actually reporting this about Biden's um, financial report to run for office and his income tax returns. There's some discrepancy on what he what he declared as income and what he put on his financial report. As you know, how these presidents, other than Trump, they, they have to tell you, you know, their financial report and where they, how many stocks they own, and how much investments they have, and what their net worth is, and, and all these. I don't want to be specific, but um, Biden's numbers don't add up. The number on the financial report and the number on the um, on the tax returns are not one uh, in the same. Eight four three six six one zero nine. Three seven is our number. I do want to add one real quick nugget before we take our break, Josh. I do want to say that um, the the government shutdown was something the Democrats talked a lot about yesterday. Um, Ukrainian funding is a big part of this. I think it's interesting. I read this morning um, Ukraine. Um, there was a three hundred dollar, three hundred million dollar benefit aid to Ukraine that the the House approved three eleven to one seventeen. Um, 117 Republicans, the majority of Republicans did not support the aid to Ukraine. Um, 101 Republicans did. So the majority of Republican office holders are opposed to, um, to sending more money to Ukraine. Th- this is kind of interesting. Ukraine is firing 6,000 artillery shells a day. I mean, they're reporting that. That's what they're going through. 
6,000 artillery shells every day. They say they need 10,000 to win. They need 10,000 artillery shells a day to defeat the Russians. We've sent about 2 million artillery shells, far more than anybody else in NATO. Um, we manufacture about 30,000 artillery shells a month. Um, that's our current manufacturing. I'm not saying that's capacity. I mean, maybe they could you know, create more capacity, make more artillery shells. Um, I, I just think that's, hmm. uh, you do the math. I mean, you know, they, they say they need all the artillery shells we make in a month to get through three days. Three days. I mean, I know NATO's providing others. England and Germany and some of these other countries are giving them armaments as well. But I just found that, I mean, every now and then you kind of extrapolate some of the math. They're firing 6,000 a day. They say they need 10,000 a day. We make or manufacture 30,000 a month. I mean, I think we can manufacture. I mean, I've read we can double that capacity if necessary. We could go from 30 to 60,000 artillery shells pretty quick. Six days worth. Yeah, six days worth. There you go. In Ukraine. Yeah, in Ukraine. I mean, that's, you know, wow. I, I, how did we get into this again? I mean, how do we not see the writing on the wall? It, it never fails. We, we end up, you know, investing and we invest a little more and invest a little more and invest a little more. And then we get to a point where we can't stop investing because we're too invested it just, it, for the life of me. And every single Democrat yesterday in the House voted for the $300 million aid package to Ukraine. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. It'll be interesting to watch the mainstream media today, the Post, the Times, the Wall Street Journal, ABC, NBC, CBS News. I'm interested, um, reading this morning, the Wall Street Journal comment section, uh, they elaborate. I mean, they, the Wall Street, and this is the travesty in all of this, Rev, and I've said it before. The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Washington Post can do journalism as good as anybody ever has if they choose to. I mean, they've got competent staff. They've got an infrastructure. They, they've got a lot of sources. I mean, if they choose to be journalistic in nature and fair-minded and stop being, you know, a propaganda arm of the American political left, they could serve the country. And, you know, I mean, speaking truth to power is something we've always looked at the media um, to do. They've just neglected that responsibility in the name of, I guess, political preference. I mean, they just, you know, the majority of newsrooms in America are inhabited by liberals, and, you know, they've kind of set aside their responsibility to hold powerful people accountable in the name of, well, I mean, this powerful person that agrees with my ideology gets to be treated a little bit different than this powerful person who is in contrast with my political ideology. But the Wall Street Journal is is kind of diving into this. I mean, they would be the more conservative of the um, – now, they're, they're more establishment, without question. They're no friend uh, to America first. I did see yesterday, um, Glenn Youngkin is out and about talking about Virginia. They've got these midterms. Uh, that's another test balloon. Uh, DeSantis didn't work. Is there room for Youngkin? The one thing the Republican Party is failing to understand, and it goes back to Kahala yesterday, the donor class are not happy with Donald Trump. I mean, they're just, they're never going to be satisfied with Trump. He's too unpredictable. He may do this. He may do that. He may play ball. He may not play ball. 
Um, they may be able to influence him. What if he did? They may, not they be may able not to be able to. You know, they may be able to tell him what to do. Stop saying influence. <laughs> they may be able to tell him exactly what to do or not tell That's him. being nice. Exactly what to do. And and they're afraid of that. And if you'd invested as much in that ecosystem as they have, you'd be afraid of that as well. Um, but Youngkin is the latest DeSantis. And the the one thing that I think Drew McKissick and I disagree with, and, and I think Drew does a good job at the state level. I have no idea what he does at the federal level. I mean, I know he's national co-chair, but I don't know what is required of him uh, in, in that regard. I do have a pretty good understanding of what a state chair um, does. But but Drew disagrees with me when I say the donor and voter are asymmetrical to one another. I mean, he, he says, well, I mean, they're, they're out of sorts, but they're not asymmetrical. I think they absolutely are. And when when Carl Rove comes on Fox News or writes for the Wall Street Journal and says, what Glenn Youngkin has done in Virginia is amazing. I mean, he's an amazing man with the sweater vest, without the sweater vest, with the fleece, without the fleece. I mean, it's God's gift to the Republicans. Don't you see um, this? Well, I mean, that was the Sanders a year ago. And that trial balloon didn't work. And now he's got to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again uh, the best way he can. So, so, so now Youngkin is the alternative to Trump. And I saw a story yesterday the donor class are ready to write big checks. They've got the donor class. They just don't have the voting class. That's the asymmetric in this. Right. The donor class are not going to ever be supportive of Donald Trump. I mean, some will. They'll sense an inevitability about his nomination and potential chance to win uh, the presidency, but they're not going to go down, down that road. But the donor class does not get to elect presidents. The voters do. And I think that's the misalignment here. It is And I think it's asymmetrical. I think it's completely and totally out of whack. I don't think there's, uh, you know, a little bit of fundamental disagreement over here and a little bit of fundamental disagreement over there. I think they're completely, completely and totally asymmetrical of one another. How in the world do they reconcile that? I, mean, I don't think you can. I mean, and I think Yunkin's a good guy. I think Yunkin could be, uh, you know, a, a, a future a future face of the Republican Party, but he's not going to beat Donald Trump because, once again, the voters, not the donors today in the Republican Party, have the most sway, influence, and power. Speaking of the Republican Party, I saw our good friend yesterday on television, on Fox News, uh, asking some questions of some witnesses in the Impeachment Inquiry Committee. Congressman Russell Fries with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? We are doing good. So it's not FRI day. It's FRY day. Um, I want to jump right into this because I'm going to get your take. My my interpretation, and and I want to get yours. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a layperson. Uh, I think I understand enough to be dangerous. But, but Congressman, it seems to me that the media yesterday, in in kind of a where's the beef fashion, where where are the facts? Russell, yesterday was not to provide the nation with all the facts. Yesterday was to launch an inquiry to go where the facts may lead. Is that, is that a fair analysis? That's, a, that's 100% right. You just hit the nail right on the head. So where do you think the facts lead, Congressman? Well, I think the facts – so, I mean, to, to your point, the, the, the Democrats conflated impeachment inquiry with impeachment. They're like, there's nothing here. Your star witness can't even say that he can be impeached. And again, that wasn't the purpose of yesterday. The purpose of yesterday was to lay out where we are on the facts and then to talk about the legal framework of what this really looks like. Because remember, Democrats have bastardized this program so, or this, this operation so badly twice uh, in the last four years 
that that you know having to kind of resuscitate what impeachment is actually for. But here were here were the facts are, you have a a vice president who while vice president there are twenty companies that are formed uh, by his son and various members of his family. You have an email uh, or several emails, quite frankly, where they talk about we're holding ten for the big guy and all this stuff. You have in every which way, and, and depending on the sources, you have IRS whistleblowers that have come forward and said, hey, look, this is a problem. There are a lot of issues here uh, related to Hunter, related to these business dealings. There's 150 suspicious activity reports. Ken, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I, I would venture to say that most of your listeners probably had never had a suspicious activity report filed on a bank transaction that they did. And you have a family that has 150. Uh, I think in, in, in a lot of ways, um, the nexus, the, the, the key is that, you know, I guess if you're looking at this, the key is the nexus between Hunter and uh, his dad. And if there is no nexus there, which I don't believe that there, I believe that there is a nexus. Um, if there's no nexus there, then, then, Impeachment inquiry, I think, dies. But if there's a nexus there and decisions are being made at the federal level while you are vice president or president that benefit your family, you start talking in terms of impeachment. One of the requirements of the Constitution is bribery. Is that on the table? Um, I think it could be. Um, I think high crimes and misdemeanors, which the framers of the Constitution vaguely defined on purpose, they went – painstakingly through certain scenarios and certain words that they could use, and they landed on this. And so this is an old English common law term. Uh, and so I think the House is being very prudent. They're being being very responsible in the way that they're doing this. And, and that's kind of the purpose of the hearing was yesterday is where are we and how does this fit together right now as it stands right now in an impeachment inquiry? Congressman, is it enough for Hunter Biden to have transacted certain amounts of money to his dad, but we can't trace policy? And uh, Jim Jordan has really honed in this 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 prosecutor in in Ukraine. You see where I'm headed? I mean, it, it, it's nasty. Right. It's sleazy. It shouldn't happen. It, 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 it makes us all suspicious of government. But but what if we can prove that Hunter Biden did indeed um, fund his father in some way, shape or form? But there's no corroborating policy. There's no apparent bribery here. Where do we stand on that? Well, I think one of the things that was kind of honed in on yesterday is, is Democrats want like, you know, the Senator Menendez version of of this where there's like gold bars literally in Joe Biden's pockets. Right. Like they're they want that incredibly bright line standard. And with these financial crimes, what Professor Jonathan Turley talked about yesterday is. That's not what the law says. The law says in bribery that a benefit to the family can be, you know, can be enough. Uh, and there's case law after case law that's kind of support that. So uh, you don't necessarily need like cash in pockets like Menendez did or gold bars, uh, but a benefit to the family uh, is enough. And I think, you know, to, to the chairman's point, uh, Chairman Jordan's point, you know, that that might be that might be where this is, is that. Decisions are made that benefit his family. I mean, you have a, you have a guy who I don't think personally ever thought he was going to run for president when he was VP. You know, his own party was kind of writing him off. They thought Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016 and, you know, that she would serve eight years. And by the time that she was done, he'd probably be too old to do this. 
And so you have a guy that's kind of, you know, going off into the sunset, and all these companies are formed, you know, in, in the waning years of his service uh, as vice president. And so that's, I think that's kind of where we are. Russell, how complicit? Um, a, a lot of the commentary yesterday was, look, we wouldn't have had to do this had DOJ, the FBI, and RS done their job. They didn't. Now it's upon us to try and, you know, create the paper trail necessary to prove or not prove that there was, um, you know, bribery or some other sort of corruption. But, but, but how much enforcement does the impeachment inquiry give Congress? In other words, when you ask a bank for bank records, can they refuse um, to give them? Well, I don't think that they can. Um, in a lot of ways, you issue a subpoena and it's done. What what uh, what the purpose of oversight is 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 on any committee, just any committee in Congress or in the Senate. Oversight is there to help guide and shape public policy, right? Like you have a hearing for the purpose of kind of looking under the hood, talking to experts in their field, whatever it may be. Uh, and it, it, the intent is there to help shape public policy. The Constitution is very clear um, that when an impeachment inquiry, uh, it's a unique function of the House. And so uh, the, the defense that, that, that Joe Biden would raise or his, his son or anybody was, this is just a fishing expedition. They don't have anything. Um, impeachment inquiry is a unique function of the House. I think from a legal standpoint, it just makes it that much more weighty um, when you go and get these things. Yesterday, after the hearing, at the conclusion, Chairman Comer says, you know, here's where we stand. We just had 700 pages that were released by the Ways and Means Committee that continue to build on this case. We are now subpoenaing uh, Jim Biden, uh, his bank records, and Hunter Biden's personal bank records. And so you just continue to build that case. And look, let the facts go where they go. But we, today we know more. And, and this is what's remarkable to me. Democrats have tried to kick up dust this entire time. There's nothing there. You're going to see Papa John's receipts in any bank records that you find, and that's it. Um, the goalposts are moving. And I, I do think that they internally are worried that where this goes uh, because the evidence is just so damning. I mean, the connections are there. When you look at the timeline, and some of this is Joe Biden's own admissions, where he got the prosecutor fired, despite the State Department saying that Shokin was reforming, you know, some of the the legal aspects of of uh, you know operations in Ukraine. You know, they they kind of deviated from from State Department policy and State Department rhetoric about where Ukraine stood um, to to block this block these funds until he got fired. That, to me right now, is the clearest nexus of, of helping your son and his business ventures out under the color of the United States government's official position. Okay, last question. I'm of the opinion, may be wrong, but I'm of the opinion from the outside looking in that the DOJ is more equipped to investigate it expeditionally. I mean, they could do this a lot quicker if they chose to. What sort of disadvantage does the oversight and impeachment inquiry when it comes to manpower? I mean, could this thing take a lot longer than we wish it would? I think it could. And, and you know, on the one side of this coin, Ken, is you have the, the, the issues surrounding the Bidens, uh, their family, the business dealings, the transactions. The flip side of that coin, and you just hit on it, is the cover-up. Right. And that's kind of what what I believe that this is. You have 
prosecutors who refuse to prosecute. They refuse to allow investigators to do their job. They don't follow protocol within the IRS tax division, the IRS, the FBI, or the DOJ to allow prosecutors to kind of go. And then that's what some of the witness testimony was yesterday, that these are people who served in this field. And to kind of, you know, handcuff these investigators, you can't, you can't say this person's name. You can't ask about pay for play from a campaign finance perspective. I mean, in, in so many ways, they blocked investigation. And, and I think you and me and your listeners all want to know, well, why? I mean, if that's your job and that's what protocol dictates that you do, why are we not following protocol to, to lead the facts to where they go? And, you know, they are equipped. And so the, the other question to this is, why did you stop it? Why did you not do your job? Well, explain. Congressman, thank you for your time this morning. Have a great day, sir. Y'all too. Thank you so much. Congressman Russell Fry of uh, the 6th Congressional District. 7th. 7th Congressional District. Why did I know that? I was like 6. <laughs> it's the old 6 is what we refer to. It. The old 6th Congressional you District. You should know that because you played a role in creating that Congressional did. District, did you not? Yeah, back in the day. But I want to make sure we get these breaks <laughs> at the right time. Let's take, <laughs> let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Talking about the Biden American values of hard work and self-sufficiency. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Instead of insider connections and, um, you know, everything goes through the big guy. I want to make sure I follow followed a question you, you asked Congressman Fry. Okay. Um, so you have money trail, bank records. Um, and you're saying, okay, that's obviously part of it, and it needs to be investigated. But you're talking about the second part. Can you prove basically a quid pro quo? What What did you get? You know, was there a a government or policy reaction to the flow of this money? There Is are two questions about? that I think the inquiry has to answer. I mean, it, we, we know now that foreign governments paid Hunter Biden. I mean, we know Hunter Biden was a troubled man. Probably couldn't make a living out of the real world. Needed to make some money. Um, I, but we don't know anything past that. I mean, we're speculating, and, and, and you know, it's, it's easy to suggest that this may or happened or that. But the two questions on the other side, when, when the foreign company or foreign governments and companies paid Hunter Biden, what happened to the money after Biden got it? After Hunter Biden had possession of the money, $24 million in five years, where did that money go and for what? And did any of that money go to Joe Biden and is there an example to quid pro quo that we can prove? Now, Jim Jordan says there is, but Jim Jordan's a partisan. I mean, you would expect Jordan to hone in on that. But but we, we know that Joe Biden is not honest because he said, my son never made money on China. We know that's not true now. Um, he, he said, I don't know anything about my son's business dealings. But now he's saying, I've never been in business with, with my son. Those are the questions we've got to answer. And that's what the inquiry is for. And, and yesterday was not an impeachment. I mean, we didn't issue nor vote on articles of impeachment. We launched formally an inquiry to answer some of the questions that we honestly don't know the answers to. The Democrats don't believe there's any there there. The Republicans do. And that's why you have, you know, an investigation. And, and I think three, three lawyers yesterday said on television, you know, the DOJ should be trusted to do this, but for whatever reason— Half the country doesn't trust the DOJ to do this. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence, up early this morning for Jeff. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> hey, good morning, guys. Um, yeah, so, uh, so you know, they had four witnesses up there, 
And you heard what every one of them said, right? I watched nearly all of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there's nothing that would rise to the level of impeachment. Let's open an inquiry, which they've been investigating this for eight months now, right? I didn't hear that. I didn't hear anybody say there's nothing that rises to the level well, of launching hear- an inquiry. I heard just the opposite uh, of that. I heard three. I heard three no, of the no, four no, say of impeachment. I heard three of the four say the natural next step is to inquire and investigate. Right, because they're not getting cooperation. Is that what they're saying? Well, I mean, the email said DOJ said we're not going anywhere near. Um, you know, person number one. I mean, there's an email now from DOJ internally that says we'll investigate, but if it involves person number one, the investigation ends there. I mean, that's an internal memo, an email between DOJ employees. Yeah, when was that email written? Ah, a year ago? No, that email was from 2017. Okay. And who was was the president? That would have been Donald J. Trump. Was that? Yeah, Trump. That's right. So to say that this hasn't been investigated is... Not accurate. So, so Jeff, are you saying, now I want to get it, are you saying that we know now that that there is factual evidence that proves Hunter Biden never gave his dad any money? Um, No. That's an unanswered question. I mean, that's an unanswered question that we need to get to the bottom of. I'm not saying he did or didn't. We know now that Joe Biden's a liar. Would you agree to that? I, I mean, Every president, like well, I mean, I'm not asking about every. We're not, we're not trying to impeach. I I mean, every, every one of them lies. Okay, fair enough, and that's not an impeachable offense. I'll agree with that. That's not an impeachable offense. But, but we know that Biden said, Joe Biden said, Joe Biden said his son has never made money off China. We know that's not true. Now we don't know what happened to the money after Hunter Biden got it, and that's all I'm saying. I mean, I think those are very legitimate currents concerns of the American people and let's go where the money leads us. Joe Joe Biden said that. Absolutely. He said that in a debate with Donald Trump because Donald Trump said, You make money from China. And he said, I don't make money from China. But you know who does make money from China? Donald Trump. Running legitimate you know, businesses. No, could you say that? Because didn't Trump not release it. Well, let, let me ask you this. Let, let me, I mean, and I would be so well, interested no, no, in this. No, no. What sort of business okay. are the Bidens in? The Bidens? It's very clear what Hunter, when you say Bidens, who do you mean? Well, I mean, Joe Biden's a wealthy man. His brother's a wealthy man. His son's a wealthy man. How did they get wealthy? I said earlier, Trump right. is a mixed bag on business. I mean, you know, you, you can yeah. say he succeeds here, he fails there. He doesn't pay his bills here. He pays his, you know, I, I get all that. I accept that as reality. I'm not saying he's some impeccable example of a business you ethic. Act like, you act like he didn't fight for five years to keep his tax returns hidden. I, I, I'm not talking, I mean, I understand, but what the point I'm trying to make, Jeff, is Trump is legitimately a businessman. You say he's not a good one. Some say he is. What who business are? But but what money. did the Bidens do to get rich? So, what was Hunter Biden's credentials? Let's just talk about Hunter. Well, I mean, credentials don't put food on the table, Jeff. No, no, no. no. I mean, I, I know a Hunter lot of Harvard Biden. graduates that, okay. that don't make a lot of money. We got to take a break. If you want to hold on, we'll get to you on the other side. Don't hang up. We got to take a break. Back in a few.
843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We have kind of a weird arrangement, not a weird, a different arrangement different. today. We got Mike Rickenbach on the phone with us. Jordan and Lowe were on the phone with us last week, the week before, week before, two weeks ago. Um, they just came staggering in uh, at the last <laughs> minute, disrespecting the, um, the, 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 the logistical fashion of which we do uh, this show. Mike and Jay are in the studio. Excuse me. Philip and Jay are in the studio. I think we've got Mike on the phone. Am I right? Mike, can you hear me? Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, sir. How are you? I don't know about the gentleman, but good morning, sir. Uh, (laughs) I use the term loosely. (laughs) There you go. And we take it that way. So I want to start somewhere. And, Mike, I can't point at you like I normally can and give you kind of a hand gesture. So just be rude and interrupt whenever you feel um, the desire. But but I want to talk. We saved this for a couple of weeks, and and, uh, Philip and I just talked a second ago, and he's cool with it. I don't know if Jay is or not, but tough if he's not. Um, (laughs) You guys, and I'm talking to the two in the studio, you guys decided to endorse Trump for president. Both of you are House members. Mike's a senator, and we've got a former governor from South Carolina and a current U.S. senator from South Carolina running for uh, the presidency. Emotionally, Philip, walk me through that. I mean, I think people would be interested. You served with Nikki and Tim, if I'm not mistaken. I did. And you're on Team Trump for president of the United States. So, I mean, just walk me through how you got there. How I got there, well, I'd say I'm just as mad about the federal government as anybody, and I think Trump expresses my feelings pretty good. Blunt, direct, he's sick and tired of it. I believe there's a deep state. I believe they've treated him unfairly. I believe half of the stuff they're doing right, or nine-tenths of the stuff they're doing right now, he didn't earn indictments, and they're picking on him. So I finally just got tired of it. I said, I'm with him, man. I'm I'm just going to back him. And, Jay, it's no slot to Nikki nor Tim. I mean, we consider them. I mean, you know, you guys talk to them every now and then. I talk every now and then. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm glad we've got South Carolinians on the national scene. But but you guys decided, you decided to put your name on Trump's team. Absolutely. It is, it is in no way, shape, or form a criticism of, of any of, of those individuals in particular. When I looked at the, the race at hand, um, I could not get away from the idea that President Trump was the one – uh, that was most prepared to lead the country and be president. Um, I, I came to that conclusion on a number of reasons. Number one, he had been president. I could look at his record and I could see the things he accomplished um, during the, the time in which he was president. I, again, I, I served under um, while Governor Haley was in office. No, Tim, think the world of, of him, especially. He is, he is a quality person. Um, and, and again, no slight to either of those individuals. My, my hope and prayer and belief is when President Trump wins re-election, those individuals will be involved in leading this country and maybe perhaps will be president uh, down the road. But when you come back to the question of hand, based on the issues of the day, based on the, the craziness of Washington, based on the um, craziness that is the Democrat Party at the time, who do we believe is the best person to put in the game uh, to lead us. And I keep coming back to the conclusion that that's Donald Trump. Mike, and, and you're a, a, an elected official in South Carolina. You're not on team Trump yet. I don't think, uh, but, but, but does it, does it, does it get you emotionally confused for two South Carolinians to be on the ballot, but this other unique political animal dominating, uh, the majority of what happens in, in mine and your party? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's really not causing any consternation or confusion for me. 
but it might be because of the way my seat is just a little bit different than the House seat. So we've got 113,000 constituents um, in my Senate district. It's just a lot of voices. It's a, a lot of folks who have difference of, of opinions in terms of what's most important to them. So, you know, when Sharice and I do our, our town, actually we're doing another listening tour next month, all 10 locations across uh, our Senate district in Florence County and in Darlington County, you hear from so many different people. Some it's, it's pro-life is what's most important. Some it's pro-Second Amendment. Some it's pro-school choice. Um, you run the gamut. Some it's limited government. And I just, you know, when Sharice and I have talked about it, we don't think we need to try to influence the voices or the opinions of the votes of 113,000 people. I want them, each one of them, to ask the questions, to watch the debates, to research the candidates, to decide what's most important to them and who's the best candidate. Uh, personally, I will remain a conservative Republican. I voted for Trump twice before, stood on a stage with him last year at his rally. Um, Sharice and I actually spent quite a bit of time with him, getting to know him better. Um, so I, I've, I've been a Trump supporter. I'll continue to vote for whoever wins the nomination. But those 113,000 people, I want them to each have a, their own voice and their own opinion. Okay. Jay, I want to come back to you for a second, because this is an interesting conversation we've had off the air, and I know Lo will jump into this. So so let's let's imagine, hypothetically, that Donald Trump announces he's running for president, and you and I and Philip and Mike are having lunch one day, and all of us would probably agree He'll do good with the country club crowd, but he'll struggle with that church crowd. I would argue, and and maybe you guys agree or disagree, I would argue that Trump may lose the country club and win the church. And and that's just a weird phenomenon to me in in our party. Do you agree with that? And and, and if you do, why? Why, why Why would somebody like Donald Trump be popular with folks you wouldn't expect it to be popular with and not so popular with a group that kind of live in a similar world he does? Well, let me qualify my answer by saying I am far from an expert in uh, all things Donald Trump and what makes him say the things he says uh, at times. But I think therein lies the core issue. Um, I think a lot of people would say I love the policies that he implemented. I love the the leadership um, ability, but I don't always agree with the style in which he he, uh, that he employs in order in conducting himself. And I, I find when I talk to the folks that I represent, uh, there's a lot of folks that say say that very thing. You know, I can't can't disagree with this policy, but uh, man, if he just wouldn't say it the way he says it, or if he wouldn't call people names, or go whatever whatever the criticism is, you know, my point is at this juncture of where we are in American history and where we are as a country, we're just going to have to get beyond um, some of the the bedside manner issues and get to the core issues of. Who do we trust to be that bulldog leader that we need at this juncture in the country? And, and Philip, you think, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've talked to you enough off the air. You just think, as Jay says, this moment in American history, you've got to have somewhat of a fearless personality, somebody who is bold and will get in your face, for lack of a better word, and and confront the other side. That's true. You know, I represent 40,000 people. They all have different opinions, too. I took a stand because I want to be in position to help my district the most. Trump's going to be the next president. I want to be friends with Trump. I supported him last time. I'm going to support him again this time. I wish he'd have won last time, and we were able to pick maybe Nikki or or Tim or somebody from our state, but that's not in the cards. But I want to represent my district and have the most power and pull from Trump directly to my district, and that's why I'm helping. 
my, my, why is he popular in some circles you wouldn't expect him to be and not so popular in places that you would probably expect him to be more comfortable and accepted? Yeah, actually, I, I love the duality of your question, Ken, about the country club crowd versus the, maybe the small-town rural crowd. Tuesday night was maybe the greatest example of the, the duality of those two worlds. Um, at 6 o'clock, we were at the Florence Darlington Tech School Foundation Gala, a kind of a higher-end, dressed-up event for, for Florence School Foundation. And then an hour and a half later, I'm on the road flying down 52 to get through Coward and get down into the schoolhouse to the uh, Farm Bureau uh, Florence County annual meeting, and it's all farmers from Florence County. So within a span of two and a half hours, I'm in two very different groups, and we're having a conversation that's dominated with politics. And you get folks who, you know, they have got differences of opinion in terms of what's most important to them, but the same message resonates. We have to pick the person who can beat Biden, who can defend this nation against his failed policies. Our nation and our state cannot afford another four years of Biden. So whoever that is, you look at everybody on that stage Wednesday night, as dysfunctional as some of that debate might have been, or whether it's one of them or whether it's Trump or whoever it might be, we can't do four more years of Biden. So from the farmer in Scranton to the country club person in Florence at the gala, each one of them, for the most part, the true conservatives understand we've got to do better and we've got to defeat Biden. You know, we're going to defeat Biden anyway. Biden's not going to be on that ticket. You asked us three or four months ago, do you think Biden's going to be ultimately be on that ticket? I said no. Why? Because he's weak. Because we knew he was in decline. We knew that he was losing strength with his own party. I don't think we have to worry about Biden. I think there's going to be a sinister plan of some sort that slides around all the way till next August. So if not Biden, whom, Philip? I mean, well, who do you think? It, is it Gavin Newsom? Is well, it Michelle Obama? I mean, Newsom's getting run out on the flagpole right now to kind he's, of get a, a little a check on. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, but I don't think Michelle. I mean, from what I hear, and you know, it's, Michelle really isn't a limelight kind of person. She doesn't really want to have that much attention, focus, that much stress on her all the time. She may have some popularity, but you got to still want this thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she's interested. But I think it'll come down to the convention. I think they'll leave him hanging there for several months, not get a big, uh, really, a, I think that they won't have a primary, so to speak. It'll just be him and, and whatever, JFK is junior or whatever. RFK junior. <laughs> RFK junior. So, <laughs> so I, I think they'll get all the way to August and they'll pick one. They will but absolutely Philip, sit down yeah. and pick one in the convention. Mike? Wouldn't we want to be a little scared, though, of, of who else, if not Biden? I mean, whether it be Biden or Harris or Newsom, it's that failed far left liberal radical agenda. Doesn't matter who the face of it is, it's an agenda that is for larger government, it's for more spending, it's for a liberal social agenda that erodes the very fabric of what's made our nation great, the, the family and our faith. And, the, and you eat because you work, and if you don't work, you don't eat. Like, that's an agenda that isn't just Biden's, that's a, the radical liberal left i'm concerned that any one of them would be in the office the conservatives have to win the white house next year and, and, I, and i'll say this and jay you jump in i mean i'll say i mean they will find a messenger i mean they, they will circle the wagons i mean it is a very liberal leftist radical agenda and if biden isn't the person somebody else will will, will fly that flag oh 100 um to philip's point i think we're better off if it is biden yep you know if if trump 
is the nominee. Which well, is, let, let me stop you there because Kahaley came on the show yesterday at the last moment about the debate, and Robert said, first time I've heard him say this, if you think somebody other than Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, you're living in la-la land. The only thing that stops him from winning a primary is some sort of unknown conviction. I mean, if, if we run into a lot more trouble in one of these trials than most people imagine, I mean, that there could be an exclusion, that there could be something happen legally that disallows him from being the candidate. But outside of that, you're living in, I mean, his words were fantasy world if you don't believe he's going to be the nominee and win the primary. Well, and not to take us too, too far off on a tangent on that particular issue, but go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago about that. Th- think about if, if we allow that, if this country allows that to happen, and I'm not screaming for revolution or anything like that at this juncture in time. Not yet. <laughs> leave, leave that to me. <laughs> what I'm saying is if we believe, if we know that's a manipulation of the justice system and process that has led to those cases, and then those cases are the thing that keeps him from being the nominee to be president of the United States, what are we talking about? This is Tea Party. I mean, th- I mean this, this is, is honestly revolutionary era stuff. This is Banana Republic. This is all, it is all a sham. Th- this is... Um, powers that be are, are using the puppet strings to manipulate the entire country. Uh, and, and again, we're not there yet. We need to let the process play off, but back, play out. But back to your question, um, what was your question? Well, I mean, they, they'll find somebody else <laughs> to fly that flag. But they, they'll find I mean, he's not the only leftist on the planet. They'll find somebody else to do the work. That, that's exactly right. My point would be echoing what Philip has said in the past. The Republicans, Donald Trump is better off if it is Biden, because then you get a very clear presentation of of the comparisons one was president the other was president this is what your life as reagan would say was like before this is what your life is like now you tell me which was better take a break back in just a few moments takes mondays to make fridays 843-661-0937 someone's on the phone let's go there breeze you are on with the delegation good morning hey guys um morning kid if you got if you got them doing push-ups during the break they did pull-ups. We, we're far past push-ups. They do. That's they do. Bulldog. That's yeah. Bulldog. Here's a question. You know, I haven't been able to listen this morning because I've been stuck with clients and all that. I forgot the delegation was there, but maybe they'd want to comment on it. So if you got a, a, a Republican that, let's uh, say, is a Republican from a Democrat state, and uh, – this bill is coming up where we will cut the rate of spending, do something on the border. Well, anybody that's not a godless communist left-wing fascist knows that what we've done and are doing has been terrible for the country. But you're sitting there and you're saying, wow, man, but you know, if I, you know, Biden won, um, he won my district, you know, for the, for the presidential race. You know, he won it pretty big. So if I vote the daggone, uh, you know, just to maybe, you know, close, let the government close, and I don't vote on a, a, any kind of resolution or debt ceiling thing to keep the government running because I know what we need to do is we need to cut the rate of spending, honestly cut spending. But if I do that, I may not get reelected. So my question is, is it more important for the Republican to get reelected? Because I guess he's inept to get a job if, if he, you know, he's, yeah, that's the only thing he could do is be a congressman or a senator. Is that uh, what should the Republican do? Should he vote to do what's best for the country, or should he vote to do what's best to keep him getting reelected? And then I guess you know I wonder if that ever happens on the state level. 
you say, man, I'd love to vote for that because I know it's the right thing to do. But if I vote for that, I won't get reelected. Well, I never understood where politics is supposed to be a lifelong career. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, I'll frame the question this way, and I'll ask both of you guys this. I mean, you're always in conflict. I mean, you're always what you believe personally, um, what the party stands for. I mean, I've been at odds with the party. I mean, I'm a Republican, but, but there's only one of two choices. I mean, I've got a big libertarian bias about me, and every now and then I have to check that at the door and say, you know, I don't get to run this joint as I see fit. I am a part of a party, and the party has to move in one general direction or another. But I don't think it's – it would not be unusual for me to believe that, that elected officials are conflicted a lot in, in, in what they personally believe and what may or may not be the best thing to do as part of a, um, a legislative body. Well, you got the shutdown of the government. That's kind of where we're at right now, with this, I think, with this discussion. You got about 12 people saying, well, heck no, we're not going to do it unless you give me this, this, and this. Well, they want all the Ukrainian funding taken out of the bill. They want a couple things. Sure. I mean, and they want to solve immigration. It, the budget's really not a place you're supposed to solve everything else with a budget. Uh, you're supposed to vote on policy. You're supposed to have a bill. You're supposed to think through a bill and take one subject and perfect something. And it's never perfect, and you're going to have some folks that stray. But we're, the budget's being misused because it's really the only thing they're talking about. That's the only thing they can get on the floor that's going to have to pass the House and the Senate or you get a continuing resolution. I think while it sounds sexy to say, well, the 12 of us are not going to do it unless we get all of these demands, is, is not the reality of, of politics. 12 people can't wag the dog. In this case, though, they can cause us to go into, you know, a meltdown for a minute. It, it, it like you said, it always results in them, them getting their their money and and the taxpayers getting shafted again. We have to find a way to get to curb some spending. We've got to get Trump on that same train because he really didn't do it last time. So specifically to Breeze's point in question, I, I think it's a real thing. You know, we have folks we send to Washington. Uh, we send some good folks to Washington. I can give you a list of names. Uh, I think are doing a good job. On the other hand, we have a whole lot of folks that get comfortable making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year on a Cadillac retirement program, and they want to hang on to that. It's you know, it's it's a not a bad gig, um, and they want to protect that revenue stream and that lifestyle. Uh, Columbia is a little bit different. You know, it's not a two hundred thousand dollar a year job. Uh, I think it nets out for most of us around twenty five ish by the time you get your per diems and everything else uh, running up and down the road. Um, but I will say this, I think the conflict in Columbia becomes more of, you know, what I want to see as a conservative representative and what I can get past. Um, and sometimes those conflict with each other. I, I look around the room and there's 124 of us sitting in that, in that house chamber. I sit next to one, you know, I, we consider ourselves two of the most, more conservative people in that room, but there are others that aren't as quite quite as conservative and then there are others to your point that are tr- are libertarians perhaps they say republican but they're really libertarian so it is a constant conflict of managing what i believe is the right direction in concert with what i believe we can actually get accomplished and passed now to the question at hand to the shutdown i totally agree with what philip just said my question really would be to the folks that are making that decision is how is this going to be different than the times we've done it before. That's the question I think we've got to answer. Are we just going to do this for five to 30 days and, you know, trash is going to build up or whatever the issue is going to uh, at hand. What are we substantially going to walk away? Do we really believe we can accomplish through this? And if it's worth the, 
the pain, then we need to do it. But 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 it's surely we all agree it's someone's discretion to decide what hill they're willing to down. I mean, you know, Jordan's may be different than Lowe's. Lowe's may be different than Rick and Bob. Breeze's may be different than mine. But we all have an opportunity to decide what is a bridge too far. Um, I mean, I'm not opposed at all for someone standing by their conviction saying, I just don't believe there needs to be another penny sent to Ukraine, and I put my political career at risk by voting just what, what I internally feel or believe. That's the conflict, Philip. And, and to me, a, a good elected official is always dealing with, with that internal struggle. Well, n- nobody likes to say compromise anymore because now it sounds like you're weak. But Washington is broken. They're, they don't have a bill that comes out where both sides end up trying to find some happy medium somewhere and, and solve most of the problem because you'll never solve an entire problem. But if you can get 80% of a problem that you can agree on, then that's that's good governing the best you can get. And and 10 or 12 people trying to get their way or the highway, it doesn't work in Washington. That's what we're faced with. We're only trying, Republicans are just trying to make sure that we please our people. Democrats are trying to please theirs, and it's a broken system. So we're fluctuating between the whim of the next president and executive power. That's how we're being governed now. And and if that's not the worst-case scenario, it's the courts having to intervene and, and start making law on their own. But it's broken in Washington in their legislature. And, Jay, part of the brokenness is the inability to budget. I mean, the one thing that, and I, and I watched this from up close. I mean, I sat there and presided over the Senate, and I watched people who disagreed about how much money should go here and how much money should go there. But there was an intimacy there. There was an understanding that there was a, a subcommittee and a committee and a full vote and, and amendments. I mean, there, there was a, a, a budgeting process that people went through. I think, Philip, I mean, that, that's where Washington loses not just the intimacy, but the, the connection to reality. Well, you talk about that connection to reality, and sometimes we, you know, folks cross a line and don't realize the line was crossed. You know, where did we cross the line? Well, it's way back there. In in my opinion, we crossed the line as the federal government when we went when we went down the road of of uh, deciding it was appropriate to spend money we didn't have. Once you get away from the concept of you know, we go to Columbia. Phillips involved in the budget on a very um, intimate level. He's very involved in the process of that. At the end of that budget process, every we every year. We have to balance that budget. We have to get a letter that, uh, from our accountant, accountants that say you have not crossed that line. You have not spent money that doesn't exist. You're in balance. And when the federal government years and years and years ago decided that didn't matter, we crossed a line that was going or is going to continue to have consequences for us. Well, and, and I'll say this. We'll take a break. These guys govern. When you go to Washington, you can pretend to govern. Because deficit spending allows you to live in in a land that's um kind of like fantasy land. Take a break. Back in a few. Four three six six one zero nine three seven. Got to hustle a bit because we got football picks after our next break. But I want to I want to ask you guys a, a very blunt question, and it may be fair, may not be fair. Um, we were friends before. We'll be we'll be friends after. I think when the federal government that we despise, you said you despise it. You said you despise it. I say four hours a day every day a week. I despise it. What can you do to protect the people of South Carolina from some of what the federal government tries to do? Philip? If the federal government sends us money, then they put a string on it. Every time it comes and it says, all right, you can do this, but you got to do it in these parameters. And the same way with Medicare or Medicaid. Remember, we never did buy in on that extra Medicaid. We fought it like several other states. A couple of them have caved. 
it's money that would have gone for health care and, and but we'd have had to then I think it was three years later, we had to begin our match of that. And we were saying, no, we're not falling into that. So in some cases, we've just opted out. You know, the ARPA money that's recently come is going to all our little small towns and cities and counties to help with infrastructure, primarily sewer and water type projects, which everybody will say, hey, listen, that's good infrastructure. We need that. We need that to grow. We need that just for people to have good drinking water. So we we have to make a decision. We could have turned away $1.5 billion that the federal government didn't have, but they gave to us anyway. Uh, and, and, of course, that became inflationary. So I feel like I contributed to inflation with the way this money came down. It's it's a tough call. And, and, and Jay, is that the yin and yang of, of, of ideology and pragmatism? Well, it's a constant tug of war. I go back to what you know Reagan talked about and some of his references to the federal government. The federal government is that giant monster. The federal government is that baby that you know has an insatiable appetite on the front end and no responsibility on the back end. The federal government is is going to constantly try and wash over. Um, that's that's just in its nature over time. So as a state, I think we have an obligation to try and do, do um, our best to promote and pass conservative um, legislation. You know, if you look at um, my, my sort of test is always kind of the proof is in the pudding. If you look at, you know, people are moving to South Carolina in large numbers away from some of these more liberal, um, more big government states. Businesses are leaving those places and coming to South Carolina. So I think, you know, look, we're, we're the – little brother to the federal government. There's no other way to say it. And so we have to um, understand that that bigger picture, as Philip just described it. But at the same time, we have to keep doing what we can do to push back. Do we have a call? We do. Okay, let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You're on with the delegation. Hey, uh, I uh, wanted to talk about uh, Tim and uh, Nikki, but uh, – they're fine people in their way. Nikki is a clever person, but you'd never want to meet a finer person than uh, uh, Tim Scott. And I hope uh, I'm sorry that he's not going to run for Senate, but uh, that I guess that's the way it is. But I'm concerned about in South Carolina with the education, what is being done to make uh, education, make sure that our children learn how to read in, by the second grade, I don't. Uh, I think by the third grade, you're already pretty much behind. You've got to learn your letters and numbers in the first grade and um, start to learn to read, uh, and so that you can read simple sentences by the second grade. And as far as Trump, he uses too many. As far as styles, Strunk and White hates him, but uh, and from the grave. But they, the the truth is he uses too many L-Y words and too many adverbs. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I appreciate that. They, let's, so let's uh, – education. I mean, is there – I mean, we've argued on this show, and you guys have both advocated for reform in public education, K-12. through Jay, you're nodding your head and want to jump in? No, absolutely. And reading is the key to education. If you, it's sort of like we talk about securing the border. If you can't secure your border, what kind of country are you going to have? If you can't teach someone to read – they're not going to have a very productive life ahead of them. So reading is the actual bedrock of education. Um, and the bad news is you have to, I believe you have to confront that bad news. COVID did not do us any favors in making sure that kids in that, um, that, that, um, sweet spot that the caller just described that Mike described that we could, we lost a, 
a bunch of them that we're trying to catch back up with right now. So we have a twofold problem. It's just catching up with these kids that were damaged by the COVID shutdown um, and the lack of opportunities there, and then making sure that we get the kids younger and younger. That's the answer. We need to get kids um, read to and reading as young as possible. And, and Philip, you talked about all the um, economic development in South Carolina, the growth in South Carolina. That will require an educated workforce. I've always believed that that's one of the issues we have to be perpetually addressing. Uh, yes, I think you have to invest in early childhood education. You have to, when you start seeing them falling behind, you may have to strike art class or history class or something and add a remedial reading class. And so when they get to the end of the third grade, they can read and don't advance them through the fourth grade and socially promote them if they can't. Keep them in reading classes until they can. I mean, math and reading both, but but reading, if you can't read, you, you know, you can't do much in this society and, and industry is looking at your educated workforce. So uh, I think school choice is your second issue. Reading and school choice are my answers. Okay, fair enough. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments with some college football picks. We just had some breaking news. Diane Feinstein has passed away. Senator from California. But she will not resign her seat uh, from the U.S. From the U.S. That's a bit crass, but but I, I you know I, I'm being honest, guys. They've asked for it. I mean, you know the um, the state of our nation requires controversial things to be said, and I just said something. Nobody cares what I say. Controversial, but anyway, Godspeed to the Feinstein family. Um, that's one less senator, and I would imagine Gavin Newsom will sooner than later handpick her her replacement. That'll be very interesting. Because he's got a um, kind of a national name or brand. Um, anybody care to speculate on who that may or may not be? My question would be, can he pick himself? No. <laughs> he can. I think, I mean, we, I think we, he we, can. We know he can. <laughs> Will he? I don't know. Adam Schiff, I think, is, um, has put his name in the hat to be a candidate for, uh, for that seat because we didn't think she was going to, to run again. Uh, let's go to football games. You ready? Speaking of California, one of the big games this weekend, and I think you've been the um, – the expert on prime in Colorado, Mr. Jordan, um, the first game I want to talk about is Southern California. I would never say USC, Southern California at the Buffaloes. So Cal coming to Colorado, it's a, a noon kick their time. So you're going to, have to get up and eat breakfast to watch this game. If you want to see it where we live, I think it's a 10 kick their time, 10 kick. It's a 12 kick on the East coast. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's um, a morning affair. Wow. So close Closer than it should be based on what we saw last week, but uh, SoCal finds a way to win. Okay. Philip? He's been right on prime. It's just hard to it's just hard to deviate from that. But I, I don't think they're as good as, as we I, – I go with Southern Cal. Okay, Southern Cal, both of you. Florida at Kentucky. Kind of an interesting, interesting game if you're a Gamecock because both those teams wait. Philip? Kentucky. Okay. I was going to say Kentucky, but I, I you know, we got to create some differences here. And this is one I, I'm just, I think Florida's got a little bit of momentum. They get, they go to Kentucky and win. Gators on the road, says Jordan. Georgia at Auburn. Jordan? Georgia by a million. Okay. By 14. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm on, I mean, I don't think Auburn beats Georgia, but Hugh Freeze will have something in store that Auburn or Georgia didn't expect. Remember, he's in Auburn now. Wasn't that – what was that the game last week where Jimbo tried to get on the field? Yeah. <laughs> they ran around him. <laughs> yeah, they ran around him. Um, Michigan at Nebraska, 
when I was a kid, that would have been the showdown of the weekend. I ain't a kid, and that ain't no longer the showdown of the weekend. <laughs> Michigan at the Cornhuskers. Phil? Michigan. Okay. Been a long time since Nebraska <laughs> was a problem for anyone, much less Michigan. It really has. <laughs> but but you would I mean, they were one of the historic programs oh, yeah. when, when I was younger. Um, LSU at Ole Miss. Philip? LSU. Okay. Ooh, LSU on the road. Yeah, I, I think Ole Miss is going to maybe try and get some confidence back. I think Kiffin's going to see if they don't win this game, they're probably in for a long road the rest of the season the way they couldn't handle Alabama last week, even though that was a tough game at Alabama. I think the Rebels uh, win upset LSU. At home. At home. I kind of That's agree why. with you there. I kind of agree. If that, it was at LSU, I'd pick LSU. Yeah, and it's um, you know a Saturday night in Baton Rouge. It'll be a, Sunday, a Saturday afternoon in – in um in the Grove, or, or what's what's the name of their stadium? I know it's in Oxford, but I can't think, I think of anyone. The, the the tailgating premise the is better known than the stadium. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what they think of football. Okay, you ready? Clemson at Syracuse. Philip, mm. do I jinx them again? I, or? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'll go with. Uh... The orange team. Which one's that? That would be both. <laughs> you got to distinguish which, which color orange. Clemson. Okay. So Clemson has always struggled with the Syracuse. If you go back, they're a team that jumps out at them, but not this time. Clemson gets their winning ways back and beats the Orange. Clemson Syracuse. is a team right now not getting the credit they deserve. I mean, they beat Florida State. I mean, they, 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 you know, they, they outplayed Florida State and had every chance to win that game, and they didn't. And it's almost like the national media has waited on Clemson's demise, and they're jumping the gun and riding them all quicker than, than they should. That's from a Gamecock fan. I mean, as much as I'd like to see them demise and decline and be a thing of the past, I mean, they're still a good program. And uh, but but you're right, Jay. Syracuse, for whatever reason, Dino Babers has always been a thorn in Clemson's side and play them closer than you would imagine. Um, I guess in a revenge game, um, our Gamecocks go to Knoxville and play Tennessee. Um, Tennessee was set up to be a playoff contending team last year until they ran into a buzzsaw in Columbia. Gamecocks probably played the best game they played since Beamer's gotten there uh, that Saturday in uh, Williams-Brice. This Saturday going to be in Knoxville. So my heart, as everyone knows, wants to go with the Gamecocks. This is a night game. Tennessee's got these awful my, – my 16-year-old came and showed me the other day. They have these awful-looking uniforms. I mean, these things are terrible. They're black, aren't They're they? They're black with these – I, I thought they had the ugliest orange. They found a new and improved, uglier orange to go on these black uniforms. But it's, it's, called, it's called pumpkin puke. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I have I have taught myself out of picking Tennessee. I'm going to go with my heart instead of my head, and I'm going to pick the Gamecocks to win because I, I we got their go. number. Okay, good deal. Optimistic, Jay Jordan. <laughs> I don't think we've beaten Tennessee, but three times ever in Tennessee. I'm going to go with history and go with Tennessee. Okay, Tennessee. So we disagree. And I'll get Rick and Bob these games to let him choose. I think he's keeping score. I don't know who's winning and who's not winning. I know you I'm, politicians I'm clearly, are good at spinning. I'm clearly continuing to dominate. Okay. This, I, this you, you were right on prime early, but you struggled last week a bit. I think I picked Texas to upset Alabama at home, too. I think you're forgetting that one. Yeah, I, was, I am forgetting that one. Intentionally uh, forgetting that one. <laughs> So thanks to both of you, kind of insightful and in letting you in, uh, you know, what some of these guys have to deal with, not just on policy at the state level, but some of these, I don't know, where, where life runs into politics, where pragmatism runs into, into ideology. It's easy to be on the periphery and say, I would always do this and I would never, ever do that. 
until you become a part of an elected body <laughs> and you got to build some bridges and uh, building bridges requires a certain degree of pragmatism. Um, good football Saturday in store tomorrow. Take a break back in a few. If you're a conservative, a government shutdown doesn't sound that bad <laughs> until you start thinking about some of the things we depend on our federal um, government for Fox News Radio's Eben Brown in Miami. Good morning, Eben. How are you, sir? Good morning. So liberals and conservatives both use the services of government. How will Americans be impacted if indeed they don't make a deal and the government is eventually shut down? Well, and, and that could happen tomorrow night. Uh, the um, There are things that will get shut down that will be noticeable. I think, uh, for instance, uh, national parks and, and monuments and whatnot, you won't be able to access those. And some people might just say, all right, well, you know, I can I can, you know, put off that visit for a couple of weeks or whatever the case may be. Um, but if you need a passport to go somewhere, you might be out of luck. Um, you might be out of luck if you need to get a hold of someone in a foreign nation and you have to go through the State Department uh, for some reason. There's some kind of family emergency, whatever. You might have trouble getting that uh, getting that done now. Uh, overseas, people will still have access to uh, embassies. That's part of the government that won't shut down in a partial shutdown. But um, other services through the embassy may may be delayed. Uh, so that that kind of puts a damper on foreign travel uh, for people who are traveling either for pleasure or business or whatever the case may be. Um, here's something that doesn't shut down in these scenarios. The IRS, if you're supposed to be paying a tax bill, you still got to pay your tax bill. Uh, now, you might have more trouble getting through to the IRS, more so than normal if you have a customer service issue, but that tax bill does not get paused or delayed in any way. Ditto for any kind of government loan repayment that you're doing, whether it's a small business or a disaster, or yes, student loans, which have resumed payments again after the COVID break. Uh, they have started up again this month. So a lot of people are expecting to have to make their first new uh, student loan payment um, actually coming up this month in October. Uh, and, uh, and yes, you still must pay those. Um, so there are, there are ways if you have any kind of court business, uh, that may be impacted. Uh, you know, if you have, um, any kind of federal applications, if you were, if you're a contractor for the federal government, you're waiting on, uh, on some paperwork that might get delayed. Uh, if you have, um, anything to do with like patents or whatnot, you know, all that paperwork kind of gets stuffed up, uh, during these uh, scenarios. And and part of it is that we don't know exactly what will and what won't. Uh, there's concern that military won't get paid. There may be some money to pay the military, but if the people who work in the payroll office, quote unquote, are, are furloughed, then does payroll actually happen? That, that's a, and, and it might, it might not. No, we, we, don't, we don't know what's going to fall through the cracks. That's the uncertainty of the partial shutdown of the federal government when these things happen. Eben, I guess I'm dragging you away from journalism into opinion giving and i want to be fair okay. and, and 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 you know just treat you as you deserve to be treated but something tells me this is different because of the concessions that mccarthy made to become speaker is, is there any is there any there to that side of the argument uh, I, I would say i would say yes and 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 uh th this isn't so much opinion as it is analysis uh and the, the it's very uh, it's very much a political reality for speaker mccarthy that he agreed to certain conditions in order to secure uh his vote as, uh, votes of the for instance like the house freedom caucus uh to become speaker 
after a very protracted uh, attempt uh, to name speakers uh, earlier this year. And I think everyone remembers that. And so, yes, there is a threat that if uh, if he doesn't uh, make them happy with these budget resolutions and continuing resolutions, that one member of the House Freedom Caucus might stand up and make a motion to vacate the speaker's chair. And then they're sort of back to ground zero trying to pick a speaker. And that also in- enables Democrats th- with the chance of being able to pick a speaker if Republicans can't unite. Uh, and uh, that that's um, you know, that is something that uh, is very much a, a political reality for Speaker McCarthy. And he has to really walk a fence, uh, you know, a very thin fence here. Very well explained. Eben, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. You too. Take care. And, and we, you know, that's just kind of a, get in the weeds a bit. I mean, not, not far in the weeds, but a bit weedy is um, the negotiation that McCarthy made with the Freedom Caucus, some of the most conservative members of the Republican side. I mean, he wanted to be Speaker mighty bad. And he made some of these concessions about rules committee and, you know, removal of, of speaker. And, and here we are. And, you know, I asked earlier, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I asked, I, I answered a question that nobody asked. And I said, you know, if I'm a member of the, the, the United States Congress today, I mean, I'm on the record opposed to any additional funding to Ukraine. I mean, I, I just don't understand how we believe. I mean, it looks to me like we, we've agreed to unlimited funding for a never-ending war. I mean, that, that's, you know, c- call me uh, c- call me biased toward America first or whatever you'd like. Call me, a, you know, a, a non-interventionist. But it looks to me like I, I've got no clarity about what is the maximum amount we'll spend or the objectives. When do we say, okay, this is working or that's not and working. What are we spending the money yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, it, it looks to me like we signed up for a an unlimited amount of money for a never-ending, um, you know, war between Ukraine and Russia, and count me out on that. That doesn't mean I'm opposed to any funding for Ukraine at all. Doesn't mean I'm, you know, opposed to pulling our share of NATO. I mean, I, you know, we made a deal. Let's honor that deal. Um, I'd like to see the other nations honor that deal as well, but it looks to me that in typical Washington fashion, driven by uh, the imperialist and the military-industrial complex, don't ask any questions here. And, and it's always about, you know, equipping the soldiers and uh, promoting democracy. I mean, do we really believe that the money we're spending in Ukraine is the advancement of democracies around the world? Stop with that nonsense. I mean, just tell us we're trying to beat Putin. Tell us we're trying to weaken Putin and eventually weaken China. And, and I, you know, I can go there. I mean, I think those are legitimate arguments to make. I mean, th- those are geopolitical affairs that America must have an interest in, a genuine and committed interest in. But, but stop trying to tell me that we're preserving democracy in, in Ukraine. That's just not the case at all the case. We're being asked for unlimited amounts of money to fund a war that nobody has any idea what the win is. What is the win for America? To weaken Putin? Okay. If, if our end is to weaken Putin, what is the price tag? I mean, I, I'm for that. I'm for weakening Putin. I don't want Putin getting the band back together. I mean, I don't know that he can get the band back together. But, but if, if that's what, I mean, if, if some of the military-industrial complex supported and endorsed members of Congress, I mean, if they, if they say, okay, our, our objectives, the, the public has asked for an objective, here's the objective, to weaken Putin. The next obvious question is, at what expense? I mean, de- de- defeating Putin is one thing. Weakening Putin is another thing. 
how much money are we willing to spend to participate in that affair? And nobody's given with any degree of clarity what the answer to that question is. you decide is. if it's worth the sure. investment or not. Well, I mean, and, and, but, but why continue to invest when nobody gives you a price? Right. I mean, g- give me another beer and another beer and another beer and never well, ask what the price well, of that beer is. if you ask the question, you're a Putin puppet. Sure. You're, you're, a, you're a Russian apologist. Yep. You're a Putin sympathizer. Um, you're not for the advancement of democracies around. It's absurd. It's a naive position, but, but it's one that we've historically taken at face value. I mean, the American people have been convinced that, you know, there's this, I don't know, Rev, that this, this, um, this motivation our government has to make the world a better place. And I think Americans are very skeptical of that now. You know, you look at, I wrote a, a word down this morning, and I think we talked about it a little bit yesterday. The problem in American politics today, I mean, the central problem is the defiance of the public. The public are at a place in their existence, they just refuse to buy what the body politic is selling. And that's going to lead to chaos, right? I mean, that's going to lead to conflict. I mean, if people in charge tell people who aren't in charge what to do and how to do it, and they do it, there's no conflict there. There's no defiance there. But if the 3 or 4% of people in the world who are in charge dictate to the 97% who aren't, that this is how things are going to be, and the 97% say, oh, hell no. I mean, that's going to get complicated. That's going to lead to a, a lot of conflict and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things that, that that were this way and aren't that way any longer. And that's the word, defiant. I mean, it, it's kind of non-believing. The, the, historically, Congress has done the military-industrial complex's bidding. And, and, and the American public have said, well, I mean, I get it. I mean, you know, maybe that's more money than we should spend. Maybe that government's a little less de- uh, democratic than I wish they were. But now the public are defiant. There's a difference in questioning. And I really believe this is the Trump phenomenon. I mean, I think he's the symbol of this. We went from being skeptical and questioning to defiant. And, and I don't think it was one moment on one day or in one day. I just think the public in general. Around the world, I mean, this this isn't just in America. I mean, we're seeing uprisings around the world. We're seeing, you know, um, ideologies of government being thrown to the wolves, and and these new populist movements taking hold. Well, populism, by its very nature, is defiant. The general population of America have very little to do with how the country is run. I mean, we've been led to believe, well, the vote. You got that vote. You got that vote. Well, I mean, you, 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 the majority of people vote illiterally. I mean, their illiteracy. I mean, they're, they're, they're just they're, they're illiterate. They don't know exactly what it is they're voting on. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. One of the smartest people in my world. It, it amazes me what motivates them to vote for candidate X, Y, or Z. I mean, I know this person to be unbelievably bright. And when I sit down and talk politics, and I say, "Hey, who'd you vote for?" or "Why?" why you know, they'll they'll volunteer some of that. They'll say, "I wouldn't vote for him," and I'd always vote for her. And I'm going like, "Why?" Your IQ is, uh, you know, 140. Why in the world would you vote for that moron? But but they just, you know where I'm headed. I mean, they, they're not consumed by it. They're not they're they're not involved in it. They they just kind of take it at face value. And and I think that's a grave error. Well, well, all of a sudden, the general population or the majority of the general population say, not not only am I skeptical and not trusting, I'm going to be defiant. I'm not doing what they say do. 
any longer. I mean, isn't that kind of the essence of why Trump got elected? I mean, I'm not saying it's the essence of Trumpism, but I mean, Trump got elected because uh, a large number of Americans were defiant. I mean, they'd historically been told to vote for this guy, Jeb Bush. You got a choice, Rev. Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, or Carly Fiorina. Don't you think about, no, 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 don't you. But Rev said, screw you. I'm voting for who I want to vote for. (laughs) But that's the defiance. That was the motivation that led to this, you know, generational realignment of one of our major parties. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Forget shutdowns. Forget impeachment inquiries. Forget all that nonsense that matters very little when the weekends get here. That's right. Down south. Because this is on college football season. Jason Priester. I got it right. You ready? AllClemsonTiger.com is with us. AllClemsonTigers.com. <laughs> you didn't get it right. AllClemsonTigers. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My Close favorite. enough, man. Hey, he, My, was, he was so proud of himself, I mean, It's not too. all Clemson. It's all Clemson Tigers, Tigers. but I left off yeah. off the S. Um, <laughs> to be fair, it was all Clemson last year. It was. So, And now you've added Tigers. Not right. Tiger, but the plural. Tigers. That's right. Okay, speaking of plural, um, there are a lot of opinions about what's about to happen in, uh, in Clemson. Um, I'm interested because I'm a college football fan, and I find it very intriguing. I've got a theory, and I want to get your take on this. The ACC's in trouble. I mean, I think that's a known. North Carolina and Notre Dame are two big schools looming out there. They have national brands. Um, as much as I'd like to say as a Gamecock or you'd like to say as Clemson fan, North Carolina and Notre Dame are bigger brands than either South Carolina or, or Clemson, so they'll dictate some of what of what happens. But 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 as a as an SCC homer, you read riff? It just means more. Mm-hmm. I got to go on the record and say, I think the SEC got outmaneuvered pretty significantly by the Big Ten in the most recent television negotiations because the SEC, Jason, put a lot of its eggs in ESPN's basket. And the Big Ten decided that the more of their product they could get on network television, the better off they'd be. You say what to that analysis? I would agree. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know we've all seen what's happening with ESPN, right? All the layoffs, all the loss of money due to the cord cutting and all that stuff. They're and Disney about, ownership is a bit controversial today. And are they not talking about maybe selling off ESPN? Or uh, we've seen the talk of ESPN maybe trying to go to a standalone service here in a couple of years, streaming service to try to recoup some of that money. But no, I I, I think it was. I think the Big Ten's DV deal is absolutely better than the the SEC's right now. But we would agree that those two leagues are clearly light years ahead of where everybody else is. Oh, yeah, it's fixing to be the power two. There's not going to be a power five. No matter how bad the Big 12 wants to be that, you know, third power league, they're not going to be. There's going to be a substantial, and when I say substantial, I mean substantial gap between, you know, the Big Ten, SEC, and Everybody else. Everybody else. So that leads me to Clemson. There's rumors out there that Clemson is trying to align themselves with the Big Ten. There are other rumors out there that say Clemson is trying to align themselves with the SEC. Here's what I hear. I want to get your take. Clemson added gymnastics and lacrosse. Those are Big Ten sports. Um, but geographically, Clemson finds the SEC much more favorable I don't know about you, but I don't want to – I mean, Jason covers the Tigers. I don't know how interested he is in covering a a women's volleyball game Wednesday night in Eugene, Oregon. 
I'm not covering women's volleyball <laughs> to begin with, but no, I take your point. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I, I'm not saying do you know what they're going to do, but but what do you make of these these two reports? One have them going one way, another have them going another. You know, it's hard to know what's real and what's not because I did a lot of digging on this all day Wednesday for about 24 hours, and even the stuff I'm told is conflicting. I mean, it's it's just I got one person telling me one thing and somebody else telling me the complete opposite. I mean, what one person I know and trust wholeheartedly tells me an announcement's coming in October. I, I, you know, I could see that absolutely happening. And if you look at what Clemson's done behind the scenes, everything they've done says Big Ten. You know, you mentioned the, the women's gymnastics, the women's lacrosse. Their most one of their most story programs, men's soccer. SEC does not do men's soccer. Clemson's got three national championships in men's soccer. Some of the stuff they've done academically, adding that veterinary school or dental school or whatever it was i don't keep up with all that but um a lot of that seems to align with what the big 10 you know does but but isn't it somewhat of a cultural regional misfit i I mean if once again i mean you're you're a clemson fan you're you're actually somebody who covers the tigers you would be far more inclined to like clemson going to athens or knoxville or gainesville or hattiesburg or, or you know i mean not hattiesburg what am i trying to say yeah it is hattiesburg right isn't it where Mississippi State is? Hattiesburg. Yeah, Hattiesburg. Yeah. I mean, isn't that kind of the culture of Clemson? A Southern football program playing, you know, fellow Southern football programs? Clemson's always felt like an SEC school playing in the SEC, kind of out of place in the ACC, right? Maybe Clemson and Florida State both. I've been down to Tallahassee a few times. It's got the same kind of sure. feel, same kind of fan base. So, so they've always felt a little bit out of place in what I've always thought was a basketball-centric league. And let's face it, Clemson doesn't have a lot of basketball history. So, yeah, geographically, it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, just if if you want to ask the straight-up fan in me, moving to the SEC makes me nauseous. Why? Because I've been programmed to absolutely hate everything about the (laughs) SEC. That's that's being honest, though. That's being very honest about it. I mean, that's the fan in me now. I I think I do a good job of trying to, you know – Leave that out of it, you know, and if the logical part of me says that that's the move, that's the move to make it. It might be, even if it's a little bit less money than what the big 10 schools are making, that's the move. Cause but, it's going to save you some money and travel. And, well, other and, things and you know this, I mean, one league will get the best of the other in a, in a, in a TV negotiation. I mean, I think the big 10 wiped the floor with the sec in the most recent TV negotiation, but that could change uh, in five years or six or seven years from now. But, but I want to go to this cause here's what, and I know this to be true, uh, and, and I'm torn. I mean, I'm honestly torn. Jason just talked about the SEC and Clemson. I'm torn about whether I want Clemson to the SEC or not. Now, now, here's what I've been led to believe over the years, that for Clemson to join the SEC, for Florida State to join the SEC, the Gamecocks and Gators have to bless it. I, I don't buy that. That that That's good scuttlebutt. I mean, that, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. There is no way that one or two member institutions are going to define one of the two superpowers in college football. I mean, I, I just don't buy that. Somebody in Birmingham will tell Carolina and Florida to sit down and shut up. They're making a decision, and if, and if, they, if the SEC believes that it's in their best interest to add Clemson and Florida State, they will ask Georgia, excuse me, South Carolina and, and Florida to stand down uh, because this is the way it's going to be. You've got A&M in Texas. 
Uh, I would imagine A&M would have rather Texas not being in the SEC. But I think when you have this battle for superpower supremacy in college athletics and the SEC decides that Clemson and Florida State are the best fits, they'll get admitted. Do you buy that? Yeah. I mean, if Greg Sankey wants them in, he's going to get them in. They're not going to let one or two teams stand in the way of, of what's best for the league. I mean, we all know about the handshake agreement and the little block of schools that can vote to keep certain schools out. But but if he wants them in, he's going to get them in. It's kind of like, you know, Florida State beating their chest for a few weeks there and being very loud. All of a sudden, they're going very quiet. Somebody's told them to go very quiet, and they've listened. So, I mean, I, I kind of look at it the same way. If he wants them in, he'll get them in. But, but you talked about from the heart, and I understand it. I mean, you're, you're Clemson. You, all you hear is SEC, SEC, SEC. Um, I mean, I, as a Gamecock fan, we freeloaded for a long time. I think we pulled our weight at certain times, but other times we've not. We've not pulled our weight. Yeah, but he spent so long hating the SEC. Exactly. And to find himself being part of that conference probably is a little bit yucky. It's, it's hard it's, to it's stomach. It's bittersweet. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to stomach. Uh, it's beyond bittersweet. <laughs> not, it's no hard sweet. to All bitter. <laughs> but, but, but you would agree to this. It is not your job to balance the budget. No. And if there's, an, if there's enough of financial reward, you kind of bury the hatchet and, and move on. And I'll say this. That's why it, I say the logical side of me knows is the move yeah. to make. The, the, the emotional side. You know. well, if you're a Clemson fan, I mean, sure, it gets harder. I mean, there's no doubt it gets harder. I mean, it gets much harder. But imagine a Clemson fan um, four games a year at home against Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, and and Alabama. I mean, yeah, that's hard. That's a heavy lift, and you're not going to win them all. But the 16-game playoff isn't going to force you to win them to win them all. But as a Clemson fan and a football enthusiast, that's got to excite you, the opportunity to play some of those programs that you share uh, kind of a culture with. Oh, it's absolutely better than hosting Iowa and Rutgers and, you know, Indiana. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> nobody's getting excited about that, right? I mean, I get it. People would be excited about going to Penn State, hosting Penn State or Ohio State, but those are, you know, the exceptions. There are there are far, far more bad programs in the Big Ten than there are in the SEC. The matchups will be far more exciting in the SEC than the Big Ten. So, I mean, you know, that, to me, that's the move to make if it's there. Are we waiting on North Carolina and Notre Dame? I mean, is that what you hear? Is that what you believe? Is that what you suspect? That that a lot of these – I mean, the Big Ten, Notre Dame's a natural fit for the Big Ten. Um, North Carolina's kind of a wine, wine and cheese crowd. That's kind of a somewhat of a fit uh, for the for the Big Ten. But are, are, how much does what Clemson do depend on Notre Dame and North Carolina? I don't know about Notre Dame. Maybe a little bit with North Carolina. Um, I remember when all this first started, first thing I heard was North Carolina was kind of, you know, out in front and all this. They had already hired lawyers to get around the grant of rights, and this is going back maybe three years. Tell year, people two, what the grant of ago. rights is. You and I know, but some of our listeners don't. What is the grant of rights? The grant of rights is a document signed by every member in the ACC that says if you leave, it, 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 it it runs through 2036, the same amount of time as a television deal. And the grant of rights is different than the television deal. It's not the same thing. People get that confused. It says if you leave the league, you leave your television rights to that league through 2036. And that would include any future television rights you might sign with a new league, not just the old television rights with ACC. So we're talking about upwards of $500 million worth of television rights on top 
of $120 million exit fee. Can't just pay the exit fee and get out. But let's take a break. It's like a reverse prenuptial. <laughs> it's like oh, a prenuptial. A bad one. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Yeah, let, let, it's a lot of money. Wow. A lot of money for anybody, whether you're Notre Dame or whomever. It's a lot of money in Texas. And you know what Texas has? Up through the ground. Come on, Bubba Lidden Crude. Yeah, take a break. Back, back <laughs> in a few. Had a good listener, a good friend of mine, text me and say, Hattiesburg is not Mississippi State. That's Starkville. Hattiesburg is Southern Miss. Yeah, and, and, and I responded and said, yeah, but God's school is in Columbia, so it doesn't matter <laughs> what's, in, uh, what's in Hattiesburg. Or uh, Jason Priester, allclemsontigers.com is with us. Um, and, and, and Jason came on board because I admitted that I was doing Clemson fans a disservice. Uh, being the consummate politician, wanting to make everybody happy. Uh, I can tell you a lot about South Carolina and the Gamecocks, and I can tell you the good we and bad. We were too much yeah. Gamecock homers. We're, we're t- far too much. Yeah. So Admittedly Jason, so. Jason came on board and admitted he's always hated the SEC because <laughs> of that. It just, <laughs> it just I think his skin more. was crawling. I mean, literally, his yeah. skin was crawling when you were talking about it earlier. But but let, let's go, if you don't mind, got a few moments here. Let's go to, um. I want to real quick go to last week's game. I sent Oof. you a text Saturday. Uh, and I was tailgating, and I was having a big time. But wait, I wait, you, what was that noise? I want to hear that again. Oof. Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, Clemson outplayed them. I mean, Clemson had every opportunity in the world. Now, I will, I will say this: Florida. I mean, excuse me, Florida State has closed the gap. I mean, Clemson does not have a talent advantage over Florida State anymore. They did. They don't anymore. I mean, that they were about the same draft choices on either on either side. But Clemson just let it get away from them. I mean, they just they outplayed a team. And for whatever reason, ended up on the bad side of the scoreboard. That is the second consecutive game against Power 5 opponents, which I have left that stadium feeling like the better team lost. Going back to last November. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> twice in that, a row man. against Power 5 teams. Why is that, Jason? I mean, what, what, what is happening for that to be? I don't want to say chronic, because two games does not a, you know, a trend make. But, I mean, you're right. Um, made mistakes against South Carolina. But the Gamecocks were good enough, you know, to, 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 to stay competitive and keep it close. Did the same thing against Florida State and Florida State, as I said. And, and I think you're nodding your head. You agree Florida State has closed that talent gap. I mean, it's it's tit for tat now. Oh, no. They're, they're very, very competitive rosters. Very equitable, equal, however you want to describe it. Those, those were two evenly matched teams. If you go from 2014 to 2020, and I don't think this happened in the South Carolina game last year, but from 2014 to 2020, Clemson's offense allowed three defensive touchdowns directly off turnovers. From mid-2020 to right now, 10 over the past 38 games. That scooping score last week, one of the differences in that game. Okay, I, I'm going to point a finger, and you tell me if I'm, if I'm going somewhere. Clemson had a continuity of staff. In their heyday. I mean, you and I know they had generational play at quarterback. No doubt about it. But they had a continuity of staff. Now the, the staff is a bit unfamiliar with one another. And when something like that happens, they kind of look around. Is that your fault or my fault? Did you do that or did, did I do that? Any credits to that argument? Uh, there's, some, there's some guys on that staff that are having to grow up on the job. It's not as experienced as it was at one time. Um, you know, there's been a lot of finger pointing over the third and one play that it was an RPO. Clubnett should have handed it off. He saw he had a matchup on the outside. He had numbers. He threw it out there. I think the wide receivers were as surprised he threw it out there as anybody because they didn't even block. A um, lot of finger pointing about that should have never been an RPO, but nobody cared. They were calling RPOs all day long until that one. Yeah. Um, but, no, there's a lot of inexperience. Well, 
there's not as much experience on that staff now as there was at one time. There was a lot of experience, especially on the defense side of the ball with Dan Brooks and Brent Venables and guys like that. Now you got Tyler Grisham, who's coaching receivers. I think this is his fourth year. Thomas Austin's in his second year coaching offensive line, and he only coached offensive line two years previous to that. Um, Garrett Riley, he's been around a while, but this is only his fourth year as offensive coordinator. Uh, Kyle Richardson, he's been in the program a while, but this is only his third year as an on-field position coach. You know, he came straight from the high school ranks there at Northwestern. Um, just a lot of lot of guys that aren't very seasoned on, on that offensive staff, and I think some of them have had to grow up on the job. So, yeah, there's some credence to that argument. Is it fair to say, here I go pointing fingers, is it fair to say that Bleeding Orange meant too much in hiring two or three coaches? Is that uh, fair criticism? Yeah, I don't, okay. I don't think that's out of bounds. Maybe you got too many inexperienced guys at one time because I, I forgot C.J. Spiller, you know, hired no experience at all. Probably, but a, but a he, Clemson great. Yeah, and, and probably one of the better coaches on the staff right now, to be quite honest. But just using him as an example, I, this is his second or third year as running backs coach. Um, you know, so, so, yeah, probably too many hires of inexperienced guys within too short of a time frame, you know, maybe you could have used uh, another guy or two from outside the program, fresh eyes, you know, that, that give you a different perspective. Um, every team has a, another team that gives them trouble. Gamecocks have Kentucky for, for whatever reason, even the year South Carolina was better in Kentucky. They just had your number. I've always felt Syracuse was that team for Clemson. You know, you got better players, but when you go up there, you know, you're going to be in a, in a hotly contested game. Four out of the past six divided, decided by six points or less. So, yeah, they have been a thorn in the side. Um, it, this is one Clemson's got to be very careful of because that Florida State loss can get you beat twice because this is a solid Syracuse team. You go up there, you know, half-cocked, and you'll come home with another loss, and you'll be looking at 0-3 in ACC play straight in the face. So what happens? I mean, you, you said what could happen. What do you expect to happen uh, when, when Clemson makes its way to New York? All right, I picked Clemson to lose last week. I'm picking them to win this okay. week. Um, I, you know, I, I listened to Dabo Sweeney talk, and, and, you know, sometimes you can take what he says with a grain of salt. You, you know, it's coach speak. And, and I heard him talk about how ticked off his players were this week, and I'm kind of buying into it. I saw them after the game Saturday night. I, I think they're going to, I think they're going to rebound and beat this Syracuse team. I don't think this Syracuse team is as good as some of the ones they've had in the past. I think that offensive line is not as good as what they've had in the past. I think Clemson's defensive line should own the line of scrimmage. So I, I think Clemson's going to go up there and get a win. It probably won't be as as dominant of a win as fans want it to be. Probably a, I got it by a touchdown. Okay, last question. I'm going to take you to Gamecock land. Um, South Carolina kind of got its season turned around last year with a crazy performance against Tennessee. I mean, Tennessee had the table set. I mean, they were going to be a playoff team if they – uh, take care of business they ran into a buzzsaw i mean south carolina just lit it up and that kind of led into the positive energy that that helped them beat clemson uh it's different in knoxville it's going to be a night game um spencer rattler's probably playing as well as any quarterback ever has at south carolina you've heard me calling bitcoin so who knows what this saturday <laughs> what this saturday holds but what, what what do you see when you look at south carolina visiting tennessee you know, it's hard to get a good feel for this game. Well, for me, anyways. I haven't seen a lot of Tennessee since week one. But they're not what they were last year. I, I don't think anybody would argue that. And I think 
you know, South Carolina's going to go as far as Spencer Rattler carries them. And he has been dynamite so far. That Bitcoin's been pretty solid so far <laughs> this year, man. He's been really good. Yeah. Um, I, I think South Carolina's got far more than a puncher's chance when they go up there, man. I think they can win that game. Interesting. You know, I looked last night. 74% of the money is on South Carolina, but the line hadn't moved. That's and there's kind, of, there's kind of a science behind that. Sometimes the wise guys, the bookmakers, will roll the dice. They feel so good about Tennessee covering, they believe there's a chance to make a big lick. Normally that line will move. If that much money goes to one side, that line would end up at 9.5, 10, 10.5. It's at 12.5, I think, now. That's just kind of interesting. 74% of the money is going on South Carolina, and the line hadn't moved a bit. They didn't build Las Vegas losing money. It's just, uh, you know, I'll say that. Jason, thank you, my man. Anytime. Always a pleasure. From allclemsontigers.com, how can people follow you and your work? Allclemsontigers.com, and you can find me on Twitter at JP underscore Priester. Thank you. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. If you're a frequent listener, you know what that music means. It means time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday trivia question. Uh, Pepsi of Florence sponsors this. We really appreciate what they do for us. Every morning this week has been a two Celsius morning. Um, a water that Celsius. I don't know if I could drink that much Celsius in that period of time without watering it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. You, I'd you, probably you, be more out of control than I am. You have a method to your madness. I, I do have a method of my madness, and you guys have changed my method this morning. Oh. And I'm, um, I've tried to be as tolerable as I possibly <laughs> well, we'll can. Have another Celsius. We'll have a conversation about that somewhere down, down the road. I'm sure. Here's the question. You ready? We talked about Michigan and Nebraska. Nebraska was probably one of the dynasties of my youth. When was the last national championship Nebraska won in college football? 843-661-0937. The last year the Nebraska Cornhuskers won a national championship was, and they won a bunch of them. I mean, they had a run in the 70s, 80s, and and and, and on. <laughs> I don't want to give the answer away. 843-661-0937 is our number. Does anybody out there remember the corn-fed country boys of Nebraska that we later found out were the steroid-injected country boys of Nebraska? Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? 1991. Nope. They did win the championship in 91. But they won. Uh, they won several since then. Eight four three six six one. Try to say it without yeah. giving yeah. it away. Well, I mean, they, I'm telling you, Nebraska kicked butt. I mean, they they were a. I mean, they were a dynasty back in um, the day. I'm just not going to tell you what day that was. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. You're on. You know the answer. Dynasty. Ninety seven. You're right. They won the national championship. 91, 94, 95, and ninety seven. Who is this, and where are you calling from? Uh, this is Rick, and I'm in Bishopville. All right, Rick. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. We'll get you back to Josh, and Josh will get all your pertinent information. We'll get you some Pepsi products, some Takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. They also won in 70 and, and 71. The 71 Nebraska-Oklahoma game is generally considered the greatest college football game ever. I mean, it was back and forth. Johnny Rogers was a famous player. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm dating myself now, and this would have been pre-cable. I mean, obviously, that would have been one game of the week. And, I mean, if Nebraska and Oklahoma were on, I mean, that was must-see TV if you like college football. The triple option, 
I mean, the game lasts an hour and three minutes because nobody threw a pass. <laughs> nobody called holding. Uh, it was just like J.C. Watts and uh, remember him went on to Congress. He was oh, a quarterback, yeah. Jamel Holloway, Tommy Frazier at um at Nebraska. I've never seen Spurrier at a loss for words until Nebraska got a hold of him, and that might have been '97. I mean, that might have been the '97 game. Um, Florida was number one in the country, won the SEC, and they were on a rail. I mean, they they were throwing it. Remember the fun and gun. Steve Spurrier offense, and they ran into those corn-fed country boys from Lincoln. <laughs> you know, when I think of Nebraska, I think of the 81 national championship. Um, Clemson beats Nebraska, and I think Perry Tuttle may have been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Gamecock fans hate that, but anyway, for a long time, we could say, well, that's the only one you've ever won, and then they go and win two more yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the new playoff era, um, and the Gamecocks have – Zero football championships. <laughs> um, J- Jason and I were having an interesting conversation, and I don't know the answer to this, and I'm not a Clemson fan. That may be an interesting poll question. I mean, it's out of the world of politics. If Clemson fans had a preference, Big Ten or SEC, I mean, d- do it analytically. I mean, d- I understand your your rival has kind of, you know, crammed that in your face for a long time, and there's some resentment there. But in all honesty, if you're a Clemson fan, would you rather join the Big Ten or the SEC. Let's put that up, Josh, and see if we can get some response. We'll do a poll on Tuesday on that one. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday morning.